Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Golden Age Premier. High-quality, vintage-style products at an affordable price point. To find out more, go to goldenagepremier.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fuse Audio Labs. Uncompromising emulations of classic and rare studio processors in revolutionary plug-in form. For more info, go to FuseAudioLabs.de. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. My guest today is someone that I met while on a Nail the Mix session. He ran the studio where we did Nail the Mix with Kurt Ballou. And I thought that you guys would really enjoy hearing from him for various reasons. He kind of has the ultimate production career. Like, he's a really good example of what's possible. Uh, I know that. Lots of people try to go for being the star producer, you know, like the Will Putney, the Chris Lord Algae. But in reality, that's a fantasy for most people. But being a studio owner, producer, engineer who makes a killer living and has a killer track record, that's not a fantasy. That's very, very doable. And Benny Grotto is a perfect example of how to do it. He's the head engineer and co-owner at Mad Oak Studios in Boston, and his clientele spans a range of local, national, and international acts, including Aerosmith, Weird Al, Daughters, Blood for Blood, Ben Folds, and more. He's toured nationally and internationally with Boston hardcore staple Slapshot, and basically just knows what the hell he's doing. I think that you guys will get a lot out of this episode, especially those of you who want to run a studio that gets rented out to other engineers and who are just looking to make a living regardless of if you become a star or not. So without further ado, I present you Benny Grotto. Benny Grotto, welcome to the URM podcast. I'm stoked to have you here. Thank you for having me. Um, For those of you who are unfamiliar with Benny, um, I met him August 2018, when we went to Boston to do Nail the Mix with Kurt Ballou. We didn't do Nail the Mix at Kurt's studio because I believe his internet is god-awful. And also, he has a pretty young baby in the house. And it it just didn't make any sense to have us around while that's going on. So... We went to Benny's studio in Boston, um, which actually turned out to be one of the best uh, in-studio experiences we've had um, on Nail the Mix. Like for Nail the Mix, we go everywhere. We go, you know, everywhere from the nicest places like Sphere and NRG to, you know, people's home studios and all over the world. And so 
I've got a good idea of who has their shit together and who doesn't, you know, in addition to my own personal studio experience. And Benny, your studio and the way you run it um, was, you know, it's up there with one of my favorite places to go. I'd go there again in a heartbeat. And I mean, it's not the biggest studio I've ever been in. I mean, it's nice and it's big enough and you've got great gear, but the way you run it really, really stuck with me. And that's actually the main reason that I wanted to do this. I wanted to talk about your life as a studio owner and some of your history too, but I know that you yourself are a very active engineer and you've done a lot of national work. You've had a lot of nationals come through, but your studio also, um, you know, thrives on the local scene too, which I think is, oh, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just, I'm just affirming all the nice things you're saying about me. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there's more on the way. (laughs) I think that for our listeners, the grand majority of them, it's what you have going on is a very good goal for what they should strive to achieve. Right. I mean, I'm sure that some people have it in their mind that they want to have like the next NRG, but let's be real. Those kinds of studios are often paid for by somebody who got rich doing something else. They're also on their way to becoming extinct, I'm afraid. Absolutely. They're unsustainable. The reason most of them stay open is because somebody keeps them open as a pet project. Right. Well, you know, you you mentioned earlier about the size of the studio, the the physical size, and that was actually a a conscious decision because we had the opportunity and and the capability to to go bigger. Uh, And the, the previous location, the previous building that we'd been in was actually about twice the size. Uh, and we we opted for a smaller studio because I'd been freelancing around town at a bunch of different places, big and small, and kind of started to feel like not only is the future uh, m- more well suited to more modestly sized studios, and still we're you know we're pretty good sized place. I mean, there's certainly smaller studios, but I think that there's also a comfort level and an intimacy and just like a convenience to not having to walk across a 3,000 square foot building to go grab like a guitar pedal or something, uh, which is what what the case was with our old building. I like everything close and it helps facilitate the creative process a little bit. And it's just kind of more manageable for everybody. It does need to be said though, that like, it's not like you have a tiny place, like it's a good sized place. Yeah, it's, it's about, I mean, just to give the listeners a, an idea, it's between like fifteen and 1,800 square feet, and we're using every inch of the place, you know, purposefully. You know, it, it's a great size. It's it's, t- it's spacious, it's comfortable, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like we're cramped or anything, but it isn't, um, you know, there are other studios in town that are quite a lot bigger, and there's certainly other studios in cities like uh, New York and L.A. and stuff that are just, just totally dwarf us. Yeah, but that doesn't mean shit. It does not mean shit. No, it does not. I agree. It does not mean shit. It's impressive when you walk in, but it does not mean shit. And I think that it was actually pretty wise of you guys to go with the size that you have because it's big enough to where you can accommodate anything you need to. Yeah. Like you could have a, I mean, shit, man, you could have a pretty, maybe not a full size, but you could have a small orchestra yep. in your live yep. room. And we have, we certainly have. Yeah. So it's big enough to do just about anything that will come your way. I mean, you've got a board, like you've got everything you possibly need in order to have a fully functional sick studio. 
but there's no excess. Right. And that's really, really important in this day and age. And especially with, uh, you know, with the oncoming uh, semi-recession that everybody thinks is about to happen. Yep. I think that any sort of uh, waste, uh, any sort of excess, any sort of fat business-wise yeah. is yeah. going to have to be trimmed. So I think it's really, really smart to have done it the way that you did it. Yeah, I, in a way, I wish you could have seen the old the setup in the old building because I'm actually quite proud of how we trimmed the fat and we really kind of were forced to prioritize what we needed and how we were going to use the space. And I'm psyched about how we did it because the place is, I don't know, it's its like a feng shui thing. The energy flows really nicely through here. And also stuff is just, it's at hand. You can you can grab a piece of gear that you need without hassle. And But there's also enough space for the musicians to be comfortable. And, um, you know, bands like to have video crews come in and do videos. So there's space for extra people if you need it and, and so on and so forth. Real quick, I, I don't want to turn this into a boring, like, gear show or anything, <laughs> but just, just give people a rundown of some of your nicer pieces and what kind of board you've got just to, just to give people an idea of. Sure, yeah. Uh, we've got a, a 32 channel API 1608, which is an awesome, awesome console. It sounds great. It's super, super user friendly. So when we have freelancers in here, I don't spend a lot of time doing tech support on the phone. Like we, we used to have this other board that was way more complicated and old and esoteric and no one's ever heard of it. And it was great and it sounded fucking awesome but i would be doing tech support like i'd have a day off because we'd have a freelancer in but i'd spend half the day on the phone because people couldn't figure out how to like get signal from the mic preamp into pro tools you know and the api is great it's like you plug into tyline one in the live room and you put up fader one on the console and you make a track in pro tools and set it to input one and there's your there's your microphone it's so easy um, so that's great man one of the roughest things about going to other studios is their shit not working yep and them not totally understanding why. That's oh, true. I, I mean, I, I mentioned before we had been in an old building and we got the boot because they they turned it into condos, as as is often the case. And so I spent about two years freelancing around town, and I took that opportunity to really figure out what I liked and didn't like about every other studio, so that when we went to build this place, we could incorporate all of that into this place. And um, you know, that's where we got the idea to make it not quite so big and what kind of console we wanted and how to lay out the gear and where the ISO booths go. Just all these little details that, you know, when you build your first studio, you don't even know that you don't know them. And then when you start working around other studios, you go, holy shit, that thing they do is really cool. Or you go, holy shit, that thing they do sucks. And it's, it, you know, it's the huge impediment. Um, you can, you can work those into your own plan, which is a really great thing. So, what would you say is like the ratio between projects you produce and engineer in there versus people renting it out uh, versus local or national? As far as the engineering that happens here, you know, people making records um, just in general, regardless of whether they're national or local, I, I would say I probably end up engineering and or producing 90% of them in this place. And we've got a couple of freelancers that are usually good each for a couple of days a month. Um, but it's, it, it's really a lot. It's mostly my clients. 
which is really cool for me. Um, not so cool for my girlfriend who wishes I had more days off. <laughs> but uh, you sorry. know, sorry. Yeah, I know you know the drill. I'm sure you've you've you've, you've lived it. I don't know her name, so I'm just gonna say sorry, Michelle. Ah, uh, well, her name's Laura. Okay, sorry, Laura. Yeah, thank you. And I'm not I'm not one to complain about having too much work because that's lame. I know there's a lot of people out there who would kill to be in this position. So, you know, I'm very fortunate. And then as, as far as national versus local, it's probably 85% local bands or regional bands, I should say, because we get New England is kind of a, a unique part of the country where um, people are happy to drive a couple hours and a couple hours puts you in Maine. You know, it's like two states away. You can come from New Hampshire or Connecticut or even New York. So regional bands probably covers about 85% of it. And then 15% uh, bands that maybe, you know, some of the other listeners had, have heard of. Um, it's, and it's a bit of a gray area though, too, I guess, because the, the music scene being what it is, regional bands can actually have like kind of a lot of notoriety in in a real niche sort of way where like they might have a fan base across the country because either the internet or because they've toured a lot. Um, and they're not on a label, but there's, they've still got their own little, um, you know, core fan base that would, you know, 99% of the people in the world had never heard of them, but there's that 1% of people, which would be a lot of people, frankly, but you know, there's that, that small group of people who love them and they've built a career out of that. So, um, I, you know, I don't know that the label thing or, you know, the quote unquote national band designation is, is as meaningful as it used to be, um, in, in terms of like the kind of studio business that we do. Got it. Um, and, you know, I used to live in Boston and I noticed that there's bands in New England who actually do have, they are regional level mm-hmm. and they have entire careers just based on their notoriety in that area. Yeah. That's kind of unique to New England. There's a lot of colleges around here and the geography being the way it is, I think it bands have a bit of a cool advantage in terms of touring where they can go, they can do these college gigs, which tend to be pretty good money gigs. And they can also go to a lot of cities with relatively short drives. I know you, you've toured before, right? Oh uh, yeah. 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 Obviously. Yeah. So yeah. So you know, the, you know, the routine, like you get those itineraries when you're on the road that are like hours upon hours, but you know, eight hour drives, 10 hour drives, 15 hour drives between gigs. Whereas in new England, nothing you can, you could drive 45 minutes between every single show and build a whole itinerary um, if you've got like a good booking agent who's connected with colleges. So bands are able to exploit that um, in a lot of cases. Got it. So how old were you or how long ago did you start your first studio? My first professional studio job was, um, I was 20, I think, maybe 21, somewhere somewhere thereabouts is my last year of school. So like three years ago? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I wish. Uh, that would have been about 15 years ago. Uh, and I started like a lot of people do as an intern at a studio that was in uh, downtown Boston. The studio's no longer in existence, but I started there as an intern and um, quick, pretty quickly, probably quicker than was reasonable or healthy, to be honest. I started getting um, engineering gigs there because of a series of various shakeups with the existing staff. And uh, it was kind of a right place at the right time. I was, yeah, I was about to ask, like, you know, what's interesting, though, is that the majority of the people who I've had on the podcast, and, you know, we've had people of all levels, Mm -hmm. all the way from students of ours who are just now starting to get their first clients, uh, because I think that's very interesting, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Lots of the real famous guys don't remember 
exactly what it felt like. I mean, they think they do, but they don't. Right. Because, um, you know, it's been 20 years or something. But it also probably feels a lot different now. I mean, yeah. I'm sure it feels different now than it did 15 years ago when I was starting. Exactly. It's a different world. So I like to I like to highlight people who are killing it in their own way of, at all levels. But um, the th- one thing that is kind of common across the board is a good amount of these people you know, they worked their ass off. They did all the networking and all that stuff. But their break came because somebody got sick or somebody mm-hmm. got fired. Like a a hole opened up, like because of some misfortune, sure, or something. Like, and they were asked to fill in. It's kind of like when I uh, got the opportunity to produce the drums on a Black Dahlia album record. It was because the guy who was going to do it couldn't do it. Like yep, that otherwise I wouldn't have had that gig. Yeah, like that, that's a very, that's a very common story actually. So I think even to to expand on that, that a lot of careers are built on a series of those stories because as I'm as I was telling you, I've got this first experience at this one studio where I was an intern, but then you know a few years later I end up being the assistant on a gig, and then I ended up engineering for this pretty famous producer that landed me a major label record where I was the, you know, the, the lead engineer. And Are then you I had to say who, yeah, I can, yeah, I, I can go through all that stuff. But the broader point being that you get these opportunities and they grow and they snowball and between, you know, some combination of luck and preparedness and just kind of a willingness to go for it, you end up advancing your career. I, I do think that there's a, a certain personality type that is likely to capitalize recognize and capitalize on those types of instances. And I think a lot of people don't even realize when those um, opportunities present themselves. Actually, as a matter of fact, when we were getting ready for the URM summit, um, I had to think about a talk I was going to give. And I didn't end up doing this topic because I couldn't, because it's so esoteric. Mm -hmm. But it's actually something that, you know, we all have our gifts. I think that one of my gifts is on spotting opportunity and knowing when to pounce. Right. And uh, the reason I think it's a gift, man, is because I know a lot of people who are doing okay, but they don't have that. And the reason I know they don't have that is because I first started to notice this a while ago, like when I first started to record like baby national bands, like there's a band uh, called Arsis and... um at the time, like in 2005, when they were like, people thought that they were going to be like the next big, like melodic death metal band. And they still have notoriety, but like they lost the lead guitar player, me, because mm-hmm. my band got signed. And I tried to get this guy I knew named Ryan Knight, uh, who, you know, people listening to this know who Ryan Knight is now because he ended up going from Arsis to the Black Dahlia murder. And was like, and he's godly at guitar. (laughs) But at that point in time, he was in his local band called The Knife Trade that I had worked with. And when I left Arsis, I told the main guy that the only reason I would leave is if my band got signed to Roadrunner or something like that, which would never happen. So don't worry, I'm not leaving. And then my band got signed (laughs) to Roadrunner. So (laughs) I was leaving. And I was like, but you need to get this guy Ryan Knight. Like, I'm telling you, he's far better than me at guitar. He plays in your style. He's fucking incredible. Get this guy. And so they went and 
he passed all the auditions with Flying Colors, mm-hmm. and they offered him the gig, and he was like, I don't know. Because, like, he had his local band. Right. And he, like, I had to talk to him, like, every night for, like, months to get him to understand that, first of all, he it's not screwing his friends from the local band over. Like, you can still have that band. Just take this fucking gig. Yes. <laughs> like, and he finally did. But, dude, I've had that conversation with people multiple times over the years where, like, either I hook them up with an opportunity or an opportunity comes their way and we talk about it and they're not so sure about taking it. Yeah. Like, it's like, what do you mean you're not so sure about taking it? I don't know. See, see, for me, like, I could see the future clearly. To me, it was like, Ryan, you got to take this because once you get in this, people in the industry uh, are going to understand how great you are and then an even bigger band is going to spot you because you're good enough to be in a major band. Like, and you are going to become a well-known lead guitar player if you do this. Yes. If not, you're going to become you're going to remain just some guy that could have done it in Rome, well, Athens, Georgia, and you know you're going to teach guitar for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, and I I use those words, but like that's what, exactly what happened. That happens a lot with. I mean, you know, I've got a bunch of interns that that come through the studio and they it's a rotating cast every semester approximately we get a new batch of kids and um some of them are like extraordinarily talented and most of them don't seem really apt at and i hope they're all listening to me hearing me say this because maybe it'll light a fire under some of their asses but um a lot of them don't seem very apt at recognizing those sorts of opportunities and every now and then i hit this philosophical dilemma where i I offer them something and in my head, I'm like, this is it kid. Like say yes, just say yes, do this gig (laughs) and watch what happens. And they go, I don't know. And then I'm in this position where I say, okay, I'm, you know, I'm in sort of a bit of a mentorship position with, with them. So I need to decide, do I let them fuck this opportunity up and blow it? Or do I sit them down and say, please don't fuck this opportunity up and blow it. This is, this is your moment. You know, this is hopefully the first of many of your moments. Uh, and I, I, am, I always feel that that's a dilemma for me because I don't want to coddle them. I think there's a, there's a fine line between like pushing them towards the right moves and kind of coddling them and holding and handholding. And I don't think it does them any service to hold their hand. If you have to force someone to take a good opportunity, they're going to miss the next opportunity unless you're there to force them to take it again. And maybe there's someone else. Maybe. I'm not sure I agree with you because yeah. in this case, sometimes people just, don't understand like they don't understand how the world works yet because they're so young sure ryan at that point in time when he got was being offered the arsis gig did not understand that he could keep his own band still going Mm. and that his friends weren't going to hate him for it that they would understand uh so all these things were running through his head he didn't understand yet that it would be okay Right. Um, so event, I pushed him and I would not like I made it my mission. But then w- he took the Black Dahlia gig and a few years later, like willingly, he went for it um, and he didn't fuck over the Arsis guys either. I think he still played with them when he could. Um, and I see like he spotted that next opportunity and he took it. Right. I think because he gained the knowledge of what happens when you take an opportunity. Um, and which he wouldn't have gained if I hadn't pushed him over the edge. But I'll only push somebody over a cliff like that if I actually truly believe that they're that good. Like, I think that this guy 
was one of the best guitar players in metal to this day. Yeah. I still believe that. Um, and, you know, the fans agree. Like, he's fucking phenomenal. Uh, so I'll only push like that if I really, really, really do believe it. But get get this one. Okay, I'm not going to name any names here. You did not meet this person. I hope this person's listening because you're going to know who you are. <laughs> but I'm not naming any names here because I, you know, can't do that. But so, I mean, you're aware, you know, of what we do because we did it at your studio. Yeah. You know, we go around to all the studios. We work with all the producers. Like, you meet a lot of people when working for us. And especially if you get promoted to the level of coming on all our trips with us, yeah. like the way that Nick uh, Pilata has, you know, like Nick has met a lot of fucking people. Nick, well, Nick is great at spotting opportunity. There's this other guy who we started taking and it, doing some work for us. And he's already been to Europe with us. Uh, it's been all over. It's been to every single nail that mix except for the Boston one. Um, n- next year, he's coming to Denmark with us. Like, I mean, dude, he's fucking 23 years old and he's making all these contacts mm-hmm. and getting flown around the world. And what, what an incredible gig if you do what he does. I'm not going to say what he does <laughs> just so that people don't single him out. But uh, for one of these nail the mixes, he he tried to get out of doing it because he um, had pre-committed to go on like a 10-day tour with some local band huh. that were paying him like a hundred bucks a night, like a tour of the Midwest with some local band. Yeah. And basically, if he hadn't come with us, I would have fired him because we we can't be like retraining and retraining people. Like, he, And also it's like, if he's going to do that, that means he just doesn't understand. Right. Like his brain didn't tell him this opportunity with URM is far greater, far greater. Like it's not even in the same ballpark yeah. as this tour. It's like a local band tour, self-booked local band tour or the Midwest, you know, like it's not like Slipknot hired him to play drums right. for a month. And it was like also four months early. So plenty of time for them to find a replacement. So it's like, what, dude, what are you thinking? Seriously, what are you thinking? He's like, well, I'm thinking about that I got to get paid. And, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about my future. It's like, dude, you're really not thinking yeah, about Yeah, you're thinking your about future. it wrong. <laughs> <It's> the- <laughs> yeah, obviously you're thinking about, maybe you're thinking about fucking up your future, but this is an incredible, incredible opportunity. Like, Especially for someone that age, like what are you, what are you doing, and what are you thinking? Uh, but but that's why I think that not everybody is wired to spot this stuff, and I always have been. I was going to give a speech on it, but I don't know exactly how to communicate it because I think that some people just it's like they're blind to to these things. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting thinking back on some of the some of the opportunities that I've had, I think maybe at the time I didn't necessarily know consciously that they were opportunities. Like I wasn't some, some plotting scheming thing where I was like, okay, this is a, this is an opening. I'm going to take it. And, but it's, it's only in retrospect where you go, holy shit, that blew the door open for me. So I guess I, I'm reluctant to just say everyone should be looking out for these opportunities and 
um, or, you know, even or, or going so far as trying to create them, uh, which, of course, you can do as well. But in a way, you also have to just maybe have a certain level of like ambition and fearlessness, <laughs> which is, of course, related to taking advantage of those opportunities. But I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say in a clumsy way is that when you get older and you start looking back over your career, you realize that there are opportunities that you didn't even know were there at the time. And it's just all about having the right um, disposition, I guess, to, to, to go for it and, and make it happen. Yeah, and I guess when you're talking about certain interns that uh, they have to have the right drive and skills and personality, but also the right uh, ability to understand opportunities, I think, I don't know, man, you're right that sometimes you may not understand what the opportunity is or that it is one, just but subconsciously you probably take it. But I think that the way to set yourself up to take these opportunities, even if you don't fully understand them, is to f develop an ability to say yes to things. Right. <laughs> More often than you say no. Um, and put yourself in situations where luck can happen. Right. Like luck happens but you need to be in, like, if you want to get married, but you stay home all the time and never go out into the world and don't give yourself the chance to meet somebody, you're probably not going to get married. Right. You, if you want to meet somebody, you have to go outside of the house and put yourself in situations where you could meet somebody. Now, you might get lucky and meet the person in your dreams uh, right away. It might take a while. You might meet the wrong person, but you're gonna meet no people if you don't put yourself in in the right scenario. Yeah, so yeah. I think that's a big part of it in the first place is just putting yourself there. Yeah, I, I have a little like a uh, old guy rant that I wanna do uh, kind of pertaining to this. And it, it's pertained to something that you and I have talked a little bit about uh, I think we were talking about it when you were here with Kurt. I think the three of us may have all been talking about it, which is that three old guys yelling at the clouds. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we just went outside and screamed our heads off. It was great. <laughs> it was cathartic. When I when I was first starting out in recording studios, my personal heroes, like the guys that I looked up to most, were whoever I was working for at the studio that day. And it didn't matter if it was a local engineer working on a local band or if it was someone that is super famous working on a national band. And the first internship I had did lots and lots and lots of huge records. So I was around a lot of people doing like really high level work. And, but I had, I had the same reverence for those guys as I did for like the staff engineers who were just recording local bands. And it, this was all pre-social media and pre, it wasn't pre-internet, but it was pre this prevalence of like social media posing and like, you know, how many followers do you have on Instagram? And just knowing every detail about, I didn't know, I didn't know any of the details of the personal lives of the producers I admired. I just thought that they made cool records. So there was not, there wasn't this same type of celebrity surrounding this stuff. And there certainly weren't, you know, uh, signature plugins like Chris Lord Algae bundles by waves and, and that sort of thing. And I, I actually think that that type of, um, like cult of personality cultivation has been somewhat damaging to young aspiring engineers who 
don't have any real sense of what like success might mean. There's only going to be like two or three Chris Lord algaes on the planet at any given time. Um, and there's going to be a lot of people who are just like making records. And of course you want to aspire to be the best that that's a pretty crucial part, I think, to being successful at any level, but mistaking failure for modest success is a really dangerous thing. And I, sometimes I get the sense that that is a thing that's happening. Um, you know, just reading like online forums and reading the sort of flippant comments that, uh, amateur engineers make when professionals who they've never heard of, but are nonetheless professionals, uh, making flippant comments about their advice or, or whatnot. I don't think it's going to help young people no. find a career in audio to write off everyone who isn't, you know, at the NFL level of audio production when there's like a lot more work to be done and really rewarding work, both artistically and financially uh, at, at other levels. Just just because you never heard of the, the, the band that someone's working with doesn't mean they're not with value because a lot of people's big breaks, like we were talking about earlier, comes from working with that band that no one's ever heard of. And then that band that no one's ever heard of suddenly blows up and everyone's heard of them. Or that band that nobody's heard of has a producer who nobody has heard of yet, but he's really impressed with the job you did as an intern. Right. And then five years later, he uh, has a lot more of a name and an opening for an engineer, and he remembers you yep. and he looks you up. Yep. Like, you never know. You know, what you're saying, though, I think is human nature. Uh, and one of the ways that you can see uh, people scoffing at what they believe is failure, but that's really not failure, is like, for instance, when an actor uh, disappears from the public eye, right? right? So, like, you'll have someone that is, like, a super famous actor for a while, and then they just don't make movies anymore yep. or something. And then there's the whole, like, where are they now? Dun, dun, dun. Like, yeah. kind of vibe about them or, like, boy, they fucked up. They People do this about rock bands, too. Like, oh, it's so sad that they're old now and, like, only playing to 1,000 people a night instead of 10,000 people a night. Um, and it's like, wait wait a second. this These actors that uh, retired or maybe don't make huge movies anymore, they're still worth tens of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Like, they won, you idiot. <laughs> they won. They don't have to prove anything to you. They won. And, like, with these bands that are older, it's like, dude, well, what do you, what do you prefer? You prefer that they died young? All that happened is that they stayed alive and kept going, what, are they not supposed to make music anymore? Like, good luck getting your band even to the 1,000 people a night level yeah that's a yeah. Gar that's a gargantuan feat and it's not the band's fault if trends change and the collective consciousness moves on to different genres of music what are they supposed to pander to what all the young people love at the age of 50 or 60 why why should they and how is that even failure how, like how is it failure that they're still out there playing and making a living. And the fact that they were at one point huge rock stars, uh, isn't that enough? Like, they won, motherfucker. Yeah. I, so I think that that's the extreme way that you can spot that people do this. I, I don't mean to belittle your point. Your point is very well taken and 100% true. The point I really feel like I want to rant and rave about, as, as we do, is that you're talking about 
artists or producers or whomever actors who have made it and then sort of faded a little bit from the public consciousness. I'm talking about people who never made it to that echelon, you know, and I know I get I get what you're saying. Well, what I mean is that that's the most extreme version sure. of what you're talking about. So what you're talking about is, uh, you know, you have an engineer who makes a living, a damn good living, and maybe they're not famous. Like maybe they're not my partner, Joey Sturges, right. who happened to start a movement. Like they're just a killer engineer. They do mainly local work, uh, but they're not like famous or something. And lots of people online look down on them because they're not like Will Putney or something. And they're not Chris Lord Algae. But that's really, really dumb because just to get to that level that they're scoffing at is a gargantuan task. And they'll be lucky if they even get that far. And to dismiss that level, first of all, there's nothing wrong with that level. That's uh, that's a great level to be at. You can't control if a band you work with breaks or not. But just to just to get to the point where you can make a full time living, right. like not just like uh, I live in a one bedroom apartment alone at the age of forty five living, but like an actual living, like a respectable living, is it's a gargantuan feat. And uh, people coming up need to need to respect those engineers. I also think they need to set realistic yeah. goals. Like, of course, your final goal, if you want to make you know, pop records, your final goal can be to be Manny Mariquin. That's totally cool. Um, I certainly wish I was as good of a mixer as him. He's amazing. I don't want to work on the music he works on, but I would love to just have a fraction of his talent. But my goals would, pre- preceding that would be, well, first I want to, you know, I want to achieve a level of X success. And then I'll follow that with this other type of success. And if you, if you start from the idea that the only measure of success is making hit records and everything else is a failure. You have just set yourself up for a world of disappointment, and you you probably won't reach any of your. You'll never reach your goals. You know you can't you can't get to point B before getting to point A. Absolutely. Uh, you, one thing I will say though, and I agree with you that a lot of this online stuff does give people that idea. But we from day one at URM have made a point of uh, of letting people know that. Actually, as a matter of fact, unless unless you do make it to like the top top levels, you could make a much better living working with local and regional artists. And oh, Joel, yeah. Joel, my partner, he would like show people his like, you know, he had like a hundred thousand dollars worth of gear that he paid for off of recording locals only for years. Yeah. And you know, we make a big big deal to show people that like, first of all, you don't need to be discouraged if. You think that getting to that top, top, top NFL level of music is impossible because it is close to impossible. But there's a whole industry out there and there's a whole world of opportunity out there outside of that level where you can have a great life and fulfilling life and do great shit with music. Even a lot of top tier guys, uh, you know, household producer, engineer names that everyone knows have calendars that are filled mostly with names, with artist names that they're working with that a lot of us haven't heard of, and then punctuated by the big names. It's like they still got bills to pay, so they'll spend a month making a record with someone huge, and then the next three months, they're bouncing around between different gigs. Uh, And, you know, I've, I've had a bunch of records that I've produced mixed by pretty famous names, 
and they're records that I am certain no one ever heard, sadly. Um, so they're, they're fine records, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that these top-tier guys are still working on stuff that no one's ever heard of. You just don't hear about it because the stuff that's no one no one's ever heard of, it, it it's like everyone is still... I shouldn't say everyone. Even even a lot of top-tier people are still doing what you might call like working-class audio, you know, sort of nuts and bolts, um, you know, uh, uh, lower mid-tier artists. So... It, it's it just kind of to me it just kind of keeps going back to the I feel like such an old fart going like ah oh, the Instagrams because um, I love Instagram it's a great platform but when you're in the studio working with a local band you don't post about it you know you you post about working with cool bands or bands that have some type of uh, you know promotional interest if, if you're on social media to promote yourself which of course we all are that's the kind of stuff you promote what ends up happening is you create this image that all you're ever working on is cool shit. And and we're not only ever working on cool shit. A lot of us, uh, virtually everyone, has gigs that aren't really necessarily ideal. You know, it's it's work and, and those those gigs happen. But you don't you don't share that with the world. You're not posting, you're not going, man, I'm having a really boring day at work today. Uh, check out this lame band that I'm recording. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and sometimes there's bands that you just enjoy working with that have no notoriety and they will never get anywhere because they, like, there was this one death metal band that uh, I used to work with um, that were really good, like really good. Like they had all the all the stuff mm-hmm. that the bigger bands had. And had this band wanted to go for it, I could have definitely gotten them signed yeah. to a good label. Like I got good labels looking at them. And I guarantee you that this band, had they wanted to, could have, at the very least, I mean, who knows if it would have become like a big death metal band, but they, at the very least, were good enough to where the industry would have given them an opportunity. They would have gotten some tours, put out a record, you know, see where it goes from there. Yeah. But they didn't want to. Like, they just, they didn't want to. Like, they were, they had their lives, they had their real life careers Uh like they didn't want to they just didn't want to do that and so i could have posted about it a lot but there was no point because nobody knows who they are the band doesn't really care about growing it's just going to be a meaningless post yeah but you know and then there's also definitely like uh back when i was at audio hammer uh whether i was just assisting or producing like we would have something like 10 well-known bands come through a year. But man, the rest of the time I was working with unknowns mm-hmm. uh, because those bills aren't going to pay themselves. Right. Everybody I know, save for Joey Sturgis at, when he was producing, uh, I think that I think he got to a level where he no longer worked with small bands. Mm-hmm. I can count on one hand the number of people I know who never ever took small bands anymore yeah uh everybody pretty much still takes small bands it's true i i just did a, a record uh is maybe two months ago with I, I was engineering and mixing and the producer was jack douglas who you know if you want to talk about big name oh yeah rock producers i mean that guy's a legend a, like a true legend Oh, yeah, he's the real deal. To- totally, yeah. I mean, the guy discovered you know, Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Cheap Trick. Like, the list just goes on and on and on. 70s hard rock. Yeah, yeah, a couple, did, couple did names. Did they win, like, 
battle for Sumerian records or something? Um, Aerosmith has won some Boston Music Awards here in town. That, I thought so, but their guitar player won like that Guitar Center playoff. Oh, thing. nice! Oh, good for him. Okay, yeah, he works so hard. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So, but th- this is this is you know this is a local band that 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 we were doing with Jack. And granted, it was a really fucking good local band, but they're unsigned, they're independent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And here you had Jack Douglas coming and producing producing music for them. So that's these things are happening. You know, this is this is. This is the world of audio. But, you know, I, I'm sure Jack Douglas didn't spend much time on social media that day saying, hey, here I am with this band. Um, he's going to save those types of posts for, you know, the next, like, uh, what's that band with Johnny Depp and... Um, and Marilyn Manson? It's like the... It's, no, it's like the it's like the super group. What the hell are they called? Uh, I don't know, but I know what you're talking about. But he's been in several bands. Johnny Depp? Yeah, Johnny Depp has been. This is the one with... Rock, rock stars like him. yeah. Yeah, shit, I can't remember. It's like it's like a, it's like Johnny Depp and then a bunch of rock star. All I think Alice Cooper's in it. It's like whatever, doesn't matter. You know what? What band would be great though would be you know that like I, Steve Martin. I forget what does he play the banjo? Banjo, yeah, yeah. If we had a band with Steven Seagal on guitar, <laughs> oh god, Johnny Depp, Kevin Bacon, and Steve Martin. You know. My friend, uh, a friend of mine here in Boston, just engineered and produced a record for Fox Mulder. Um, David Duchovny has a uh, has a band, has a solo project, and they recorded it at my friend's studio up in town. Really, I want to hear it. Yeah, it's like it's totally good. It's like kind of songwritery, um, like Americana ish. So yeah, he was actually when I was freelancing that the couple years between studios and I was freelancing, um, I was in the B room of the particular studio that I was working at a lot. And Dave, David, and and the guys were in the A room. It was pretty wild, like seeing that dude kicking around the studio lounge. You know, I'm like, hey, it's Fox Mulder. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. Yeah, that this reminds. That just reminded me too. This is this is just like a random little aside. Speaking of the weird world of uh, audio success and and lack thereof. So the record I was working on while David Duchovny was making his record was this for this Chinese client of mine who it, the the record we made was a huge hit in China. So. You know, I've got this random hit record in China. It's like this kind of grunge, Chinese grunge album. And uh, pro- probably in terms of sales, one of my better successes of my career. And, uh, you know, no one, <laughs> no one outside China is ever going to hear it because it's that's the, 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 the Chinese musical culture. And, and I, you know, the, the, the China, China in general is pretty insulated, you know, or, or isolated, I should say. You know, I meant to say this earlier, but to the point of working with local bands being cool. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say what it is, but I've worked on, you know, as a an assistant or whatever on some pretty expensive records at times uh, and inexpensive records too. But the best budget I personally ever got uh, in my pocket, which was over 20 grand, came from an unsigned band. Hmm. Um, there was more, and I, I'm just saying that just to like let people know that like it is possible, like, and that that's better than what any label ever paid me ever. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I know guys that get paid a lot more than that by labels, but I'm just saying my best paycheck ever for producing came from an unsigned band. Yeah, that's same with me. Easily, I mean, like by by. A factor of multitudes. Yeah. I have a um, just a quick specific number thing. I'm not going to mention the label and I won't mention the band, but a, a band that I know and work with uh, is signed to 
arguably the biggest metal label that every single person uh, who listens to this show is familiar with. And they got a budget for their album of $3,000, top to bottom, including mastering. So Fuck yeah. Yeah, and that was that's not unusual. That's like... I mean, God, I've I, I've done so many records like that where the the band ends up paying for two thirds of the costs or more, and that's just the way it is. You know, these that's just that's just how it goes. That's the that's actually the uh, standard startup budget for one of these big metal labels. Oh, we're gonna talk about what metal label it is because I wonder if it's the uh, I wonder if we're talking about the same one. It could be. It's yeah. not the biggest one, but it's one of the metal majors. Yeah. Um, which there's not that many, but yeah. they're. Their basic contract for baby bands uh, is three grand. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, everything has to get done with that three grand. Uh-huh. And you know, I've had baby band projects from labels where it's like six grand, seven grand for everything, including their food. Yeah, um, where you know I, I end up paying out of pocket to feed them sometimes. Right. And, and stuff like that. And so point being that, yeah, those projects did help me out a lot, though. Uh, they helped me get other projects sure. in. They helped me get my name out. But financially speaking, the most money I ever made repeatedly was from unsigned bands. Mm-hmm. Um, though, like I said, I do know people who make a lot more than that from labels. They also make a hell of a lot of money from unsigns. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that you should be willing to do both. It's very few people who get to the point where they can choose, they pick and choose all their clients. Mm-hmm. That's that's almost unheard of. Yeah. It, it's, to, it's really almost unheard of. So, all right, so let's loop back to talking about you. So you start climbing the ranks because of a series of shakeups. So engineering at different studios over the years, but... At what point did you start your own studio, like as a business owner? Oh, well, that's okay. So check this out. I didn't start my own studio. I um, was made a partner at the studio at Mad Oak, where I work now, um, just a few years ago. And I was made a partner here because I had been working here for 10 years and I'm effectively the only engineer. And, uh, you know, it's, I, at this point, I've just taken over so many of the operations of the place that uh, I made myself. You're indispensable. I'm indispensable. Yeah, uh, the the studio is is a little bit screwed without me, and so I actually should talk about how I got in over here though, because that was a a good example of a calculated opportunity that I saw and and jumped on. So this first studio that I worked at, the 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 very first one where I advanced a little bit quicker than I probably should have was um, um, just basically a voice studio only. We did like probably 90% um, hip hop vocals and then occasionally like an R&B singer or something. And then like every other month or something, a band would come in for like a quick three hour session. So it was, it was really just like vocal centric, but I got my Pro Tools chops really good working that job because it was just lots and lots and lots of editing fast, like super quick. That place I, I parted ways with and started freelancing. And uh, luckily when I left that studio, a lot of my clients from there came with me. So I was able to sustain uh, like, a, like a decent income. I was also young and much more comfortable being poor, which is a very helpful thing. I started picking up bands. I really wanted to do more bands. I was pretty burnt out on just doing rap vocals. It's you know, not, not the f- most interesting um, career for a recording engineer. So 
I was playing in a in a metal band in Boston that was pretty popular, and that helps a lot, you know, as I'm sure you discovered, being in a cool band gets you cool clients. I don't know, because I was never in a cool band. Oh, come but on. I, but I agree with you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, started getting, I started getting bands to come record with me, and I started basically experimenting with different studios. There, there's all these great studios in Boston, and I was trying them all out, just seeing what felt comfortable and what my clients liked and what I liked and so on and so forth. And I started doing sessions at the studio called Mad Oak, which at the time didn't have a house engineer. It was the only studio that I was hanging out at and working out of that didn't have a house engineer. And right away, that kind of attracted my interest. I was going like, wait a second, what? Every studio has a house engineer, not not necessarily someone on staff who's like going to get a salary to work there, but at least someone who gets the phone call if there's a cold call into the studio that says, hey, we want to we want to record at your studio. We don't have an engineer. Um, there's usually someone that the studio owner or the studio manager can call to say, Hey, you're the guy that we call, you know, when, when these cold calls come in and this place didn't have that. So I, I kind of took the opportunity to do more sessions there. And then happily, a lovely coincidence was discovering that I also preferred it to all the other studios. It had great gear, huge room. Um, the rates were awesome. I really, really liked the owner a lot. Like, he and I just get along great. So it was this kind of, like, win across the board. But I was really keen on the idea that they needed someone on staff, you know, or not, on, I shouldn't say on staff, but someone to, to be the house engineer, you know, the guy. And the other advantage of that is that that's a two-way street. When you become the guy at a studio, if people think of you, they think of the studio. If they think of the studio, they think of you. It sort of doubles your notoriety in a way, I guess, is the best way I could think of to put it. Yeah. After doing a bunch of sessions there as a freelancer, I talked to the owner about, I'm like, hey, you need a house engineer. And he's like, yeah, we do. I'm like, well, I love this place. We all get along. This is great. Let's make that happen. And that was where I would say my career really actually started. Um, I, I'd had that experience in, in, you know, for a couple of years prior, just sort of building up my skills and my studio etiquette, which is huge and just the general know-how and, and, and learning how to hustle. But when I started at Mad Oak as the house guy, it was a whole other level, you know, now, now local bands in particular were, who were just calling around looking for studios ended up recording with me by default. And what that eventually morphed into is people go from looking for the studio and you know, seeking out a studio to record at to seeking out an individual to work at. And once you've established yourself as a reliable, cool, whatever recording engineer or producer, now bands are calling you, but you're still getting all the cold calls that are coming for the studio. So it creates this kind of snowball, you know, where you're, you're getting clients. Now, now clients are basically coming in from a couple different avenues and you're building up repeat clients, hopefully, you know, assuming you do a good job. I was, I, I think I was because they kept coming back. Uh, and you know, 15 years later, here I am. Maybe it was just a cold brew. Wow. The cold brew is brand new. That's only been around a couple oh. of years. So no, okay. I gotta, I gotta take credit for that one. <laughs> uh, but no, no, in any case, the, um, you know, 15 years later, now I'm booked months in advance and, um, I'm doing pretty well, you know, and I, I get to do cool podcasts and hang out with Aal. Wow. You said my name right. Yeah, I know. I've been practicing. I actually got like a little bit of a butterfly in my stomach right as I was saying it. I was like, oh, I hope I don't fuck this up. You actually got it right. Wow. All right. I'm actually impressed. That's, uh, <laughs> see the attention to detail. Listen, I saw, I saw an opportunity there and I, <laughs> I was brave and I was bold and I went for it and I achieved. 
And now my career is going to fly off the charts. Clearly, <laughs> clearly. A lot of people won't say my name because uh, they're afraid of getting it wrong. That's intimidating, yeah. Yeah, I get it. But the thing that people need to understand is that since everybody's been getting my name wrong my entire life, mm-hmm. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. So you worked there about 10 years before they made you a partner. Uh, I was about, I think I was there for seven or eight years. It was, you know, it was, it was when the, when we, when we closed to relocate and I was freelancing around town. Uh, once we started back up again, that's when they were like, Hey, we want to make you a partner. And of course I jumped at that opportunity. That's a, a great opportunity. So. That's interesting. Um, I kind of have a parallel story, which is, you know, I mean, this, I don't, I, this partnership no longer exists. And, you know, it's been five years since it didn't since it stopped existing. But um, I was made a partner at Audio Hammer mm-hmm. um, in late 2010, which is why I moved to Florida. And that partnership isn't something that just came out of nowhere. Like there were years leading up to it, years from, uh, from being a client at that studio um, to bringing other clients to the studio to hooking them up with uh, with management to talking bands that my band would tour with to going to that studio yeah to uh, engineering stuff that they would then mix um, you know so I was kind of proving myself along multiple, grounds and actually bringing value to them, like bringing, giving them stuff that would generate them income. Yeah. That, you know, so it wasn't just like they knew I was a decent enough engineer or anything that could be taught more. I had brought lots of value to them for many, many years. Yeah. Businesses want to see that. They want to see hard work and uh, ambition and coolness, you know, the, the sort of vague subjective x factor uh but i think especially in recording studios you got you know it's there's a lot of people who want to do it and um there's really specific personality traits that i think make you good at it or prime you for success i think those are the things that will help you get in the door but i think to actually get made a partner though oh yeah like you did or i did like to actually get to that point to where it's you're no longer an employee but you're a part owner or mm-hmm. like, you know, high up, um, you have to be a money generator. Oh, absolutely. Somehow. Oh, yeah. You have to not just provide value in terms of making people's lives easier. Like you need to actually be like a financial generator. And then you've got to do it for long enough so that if you yes. left, they would be fucked and they would say, oh, we need you to stick around. Because, it, you know, you could, if you're just providing value, you know, income for three months, that's great. That's like a, that's a little, that's like a windfall. But if you do it for several years, all of a sudden the, the powers that be start going, huh, if we lose this guy, we're in big trouble. Because now, now we've gotten used to that level of extra income. It's not a windfall anymore. Now it's like part of our business plan. Actually, it's funny you say that because I was talking about this on a podcast yesterday, but... Um, in our course, Career Builder, I outlined uh, what you have to do to be top of mind mm-hmm. with people. Uh, are you familiar with that concept, top of mind? Uh, yeah, I am. I mean, it's self-explanatory. Yes, exactly. But it's a term that people use in marketing that, you know, like the goal of most marketing isn't to make sales. It's just to stay top of mind. Right. You know, selling is a whole different it, selling and marketing are not the same thing. Yeah. 
a lot of marketing and a lot of a lot of opportunities come from being top of mind like you know when the like for instance when that engineer gets sick and someone needs to fill the gig they're going to go with who's top of mind exactly um meaning at the top of their mind so i figured out how like what i think are the three keys to becoming top of mind which is that you have to have be consistent meaning whatever it is that you do say you uh you, this this applies as much for being like a top level famous mixer as it does to being an intern as it does to being shit a blogger yeah. a professional blogger so you got to be consistent whatever it is that you do so like if uh people love your mixes it's your mixes are consistently good or like your blog consistently comes out on Tuesdays um just like whatever whatever that is like you generate money for people but it's on a consistent level mm -hmm. it's not on a consistent basis it's not just once uh it's got to be high value meaning so like if in the case of a mixer so consistently put out high value mixes um so consistently and high value or the blog is comes out consistently and people love to read it or in a podcast they love to listen to it and then frequency high enough frequency to where people remember it so if you consistently put something out once a year that's high value say you do a podcast and you consistently do it once a year hmm. uh it's really high value but your frequency is shit right it's not going to work right. that's not frequent enough you know even if it's consistently great you're going to have over 5 years five consistently great episodes that's not high enough frequency right. so uh consistency has to be there value has to be there and frequency like it you have to do whatever it is that you do enough like enough times per x amount of time in order for it to make a difference and and so if you can do those three things if you could check those three boxes you will be top of mind for people so for instance if it's a if it's your intern who you have editing drums like so they consistently give you great edits and they've done it enough times to where uh you feel comfortable bumping them up yeah so that's why I just going off of what you said earlier about generating money for people yeah you've done it consistently so you've done it consistently enough times uh, to where uh people you know you've consistently generated money for people enough times for long enough to where you're at the top of their mind that that frequency thing is interesting particularly to me right now because I'm busier now than I've been in years and and part of part of what happened with the studio here was when we relocated we were closed for a couple of years so we lost frequency and consistency uh and and quality we lost all three of those right so we were no longer top of mind we're about just about 3 years reopened before we closed we were booking out 6 months in advance easy like we were just booked solid 6 months in advance consistently for a few years it was awesome you know we were mm -hmm. really kicking ass and then we shut down for a couple of years to, to rebuild. I was freelancing around town, so I stayed pretty busy, but I, you know, I took a little bit of a hit in terms of busyness. And then we reopened and things were pretty good. You know, you get that initial bump of everyone going, oh, cool, Mad Oak's open again. Let's go record there. And then it dips a little bit because of what you said. We weren't, was it top of mind, front of mind? Top of mind. Top of mind. 
somebody else probably became top of mind in your absence. And so then we spent the the second year of being open, or the second maybe you know whatever. We after about a, after about six months of being open, when things started to slow down again after that first little like sugar rush, we spent that time really just trying to like make a lot of records, get a lot of cool shit going on. I had a bunch of cool gigs come in that were really helpful, like high profile stuff, like um, Daughters came in and Magnetic Fields and, you know, just cool, like cool names that you want to be associated with. And then all of a sudden things start getting busy again. You're, you know, you're, you're putting out consistent product, your consistent um, quality. And then as you get busier, it snowballs and the busyness causes you to get more busy. And now we're and booking that, out many, many months frequency. in advance again. The, yeah, so now the frequency thing is in full effect, which I'm feeling right now because I got no fucking free time. Again, not gonna complain about being, you know, having a lot of work, but I will say that there's this snowball effect and it's it's this thing that I've I've noticed at, at virtually every part point in my career where I'm sure you have this happen too, where it's that, that old adage, when it rains, it pours. It's like, I'll go three or four weeks without hearing from anybody. And and I start to get nervous. I'm like, Oh, what am I going to do? I'm not booking anything. And I've, I got to start filling the time up. And then one day I'll wake up and there's like 10 emails in my inbox and they all want to block out time to do a full length. And it's like, Oh shit. Now, now I've got the reverse problem. I got to juggle all this stuff and make it happen. I think that speaks to the frequency thing where then you book all that you know, you book all those records and now you have 10 projects lined up. So now your frequency takes a spike. And then because of that, you're busy and everyone knows you're busy and they're thinking about you and then they want in too. And then you get, you get even busier and it just kind of, it kind of starts to snowball and therefore you remain top of mind. Therefore you remain top of mind. Yeah. And then the trick then is to not get burnt out so that you can keep a consistent level of quality work. Cause it is, yep. I've definitely, I've definitely fallen victim to that a couple times in the years where I got so busy that I just got burnt out and, you know, frankly stopped giving a shit. And I just, I just didn't have like the mental bandwidth to like keep, um, keep the quality up, you know, it things, mm-hmm. things, and, and, and I took a hit for it. You know, it, it hurt. It was definitely like, I, I would experience little dips or drop-offs or, you know, you'd, you'd read an off comment on a blog on a, of a record that, you know, a record review that you did where someone's like, ah, oh, the production isn't that good on this. And you go, fuck man, I, I knew it while I was making, you know, like I knew it, I felt it. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a balance to be struck there too. When you start getting real busy, you don't want to get so busy that your work suffers. Cause then the frequency maybe improves, but then your quality of work takes a hit. And- well, also the frequency can't be too high either. The frequency part of it has to be the, so the, the other two can be as high as possible. Mm-hmm. The value obviously as high as possible and consistency as rock solid as possible but frequency is something that's got to be just right because too much like you know if you put out a podcast too much people are going to get bored with it and you're Mm going to burn out you're not going to be able to uh keep coming up uh, everyone's everyone's got that band in their social media feed yes where you're exactly. going why are you posting again like you've posted five times today i don't need another picture of you <laughs> you yep. know it's weird they overdid the frequency totally totally but you see how you have to have all three of those going properly right in order to make this work yeah there's a calibration uh, to it like an alignment of all the different parts to make it work have you heard of the term punisher oh absolutely that's a t- t- touring term that's like the yeah. Yeah. So okay. So I found out the, a technical definition for a Punisher oh. when I was coming up with these three things. So the because like you know Punisher is something that uh, we all know what it is yeah. when we spot it. But the only definition that I've ever heard is someone whose uh, presence is punishing. But yes. that doesn't work because 
the word Punisher is part of the definition that doesn't work. Ah. Punishing, you know, so I figured it out. It's a person who consistently brings you low-value interactions hmm. at too high of a frequency. Oh, perfect. Wow. Yeah. That's that's it. <laughs> so I'm glad you just defined it because I was going to say I bet a lot of the listeners have not heard that term. I, I didn't hear it until I joined Slapshot, which is a band that I did a lot of touring with. And it's such a touring musician term, and and everyone uses it. It was like all around the world. We travel, we tour all over, yeah. all over the world, and people would be using that term. And I was, I, I was kind of amazed that I'd never heard it because at that point I'd been a, you know, a professional musician and recording engineer and producer for like ten it's years. Tour, it's tour speak, but it's total, sure. it's total tour speak, and you don't hear it outside of the touring circuit. So, but I've I've actually kind of started to apply it to other aspects of life because I just think it's a hilarious and apt term. And you just, you know, that feeling of like kind of dread and deflation when you see that person coming towards you and you're like, fuck, here comes a Punisher. And it doesn't, you know, it can be, it can just as easily be at the grocery store as it can be, you know, at at the merch table. (laughs) Man, get this. I don't know who it is because uh, the person wouldn't tell me, but apparently there's a band out there who, uh, they're a big band. Um, They made Punisher passes, like sticky passes with like the Punisher logo, Mm. like the skull. And they would put it on people at their VIP meet and greets and stuff and backstage. Yeah. Like certain people would get the Punisher pass. And like the person who got it didn't know what it meant. Yeah, of course not. so they thought they were getting something cool. But, oh. that, was, but that, was, that was like the signal for, you know, they're marked. They marked oh, the Punisher. Jeez, that's amazing. It, it is pretty amazing. I'm sure that Hollywood has its own version of that term mm-hmm. or in sports, they have their own version of that term. Anything where there's fans involved, I think, uh, or a lot of wannabes, I think you have a lot more of that type of person around than in lots of other sure. careers. So I think it's one of those things where we all understand it if we've all been in. But I think that Punisher is a good term for studio stuff too, because there's um, a lot of people looking for studio jobs can be super punishing. Yeah. Um, and because it's business, you know, like, so a fan band relationship you know, if you're a Punisher to a band you're meeting, you know, like there's not there's not too much of a way to rectify it that really matters because you're not going to get the opportunity to like up the value and decrease the frequency. You know what I mean? Like you're never going to meet them again, probably. Right. Or if you do, they're going to remember that you were a Punisher and avoid you. Yeah. And if you're trying to if you're trying to sell them on making a record with them, you've already you that's a non-starter. You've already blown it. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, in the world of being an engineer who's like going to shows and trying to meet bands and stuff, you know, you can definitely tweak that over time. Like if you are punishing people at first, you can just keep going into your local scene and changing your behavior to where, like, say that you start off as a punisher. Yeah. (laughs) um, And you recognize that, like for some reason, you never book anything or people never come back to you or like, you know, you you try to go to shows and you try to talk to people, but no one, you know, no one's giving you their number. No one, you know, yeah. you're getting cold shouldered. Yep. You can change that by changing up your approach, by giving more value to the interactions, by not getting in people's faces so much. Like there are ways around that. So speaking of, since we're on this, let's talk a little bit about 
internships. Can I can I give you just I just have one thing I got to run by you. Sure. It's, it's I'm cracking myself up thinking about it. I, I, I really hope that I'm not the only person who's had this experience. I feel confident that I'm not, but I want to run it by you. So have you ever had that experience where you're talking to someone in a band and of course, you know, all the, you know, you know, all the things to do and to not do because you've been on the other side of, of, of the punishment, um, you know, interaction. But have you ever just like mid conversation in your head gone, fuck, I'm a punisher right now. And you didn't mean to be. And you're just like so disappointed in, in like, I don't know, your enthusiasm got the better of you or you can tell the person doesn't want to be talking to you, but they're being polite or whatever. You just end up with that feeling of like, oh, no, I'm being a punisher. Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, yes. Oh, it's the worst. Like I, I've worried about that and I have definitely felt like that. I actually... I got that feeling once when I was 13 and I met Megadeth in person. And I don't know, I totally, like I said something to one of them that was like a joke that one of them said in like their home video uh-huh. or something. I don't know. Like prove I, that you'd seen the video. And also like, it's one of these things like that Punishers do is they think they know you. Right. Like because of what, well now because what you post online and stuff like, uh, people think they know you personally, so they'll talk to you about stuff that you posted as if like they were there yeah. or whatever. And so I kind of like told, like I kind of like said the joke, kind of because I wanted to seem cool, but it. it oh, it's very it was, uncool. It, it was very very yeah, uncool. I, felt, I I uh, he was like yeah, uh, and I, they were like my favorite band ever too. Dude, I felt so stupid. Uh, but like it was weird ever since then I kind of understood it like yeah. so I'm really glad that I did that when I was 13 to Megadeth because like that reaction like he wasn't mean like he was trying to not be a dick yeah but like you could tell like his body language changed yeah and it was just kind of like Ugh, yeah one of these Blech. Dude, when when I was uh, when I was much older than thirteen, I had a gig working for. I was doing engineering for Aerosmith, and it started off as a gig doing engineering for Joe Perry, and so I worked for Joe for like probably a year before I met Steven Tyler. Like I'd met some of the other guys in the band, but Steven was you know didn't really come over. Um, so I was doing all this all this engineering. I was feeling pretty comfy with with the whole situation, and then I got to work one day. And one of the roadies, the guitar tech was there and he's like, hey, Steven's going to be coming to the studio today. He, he and Joe are going to have a writing session. And I was like, oh, cool. This is great. Like, I finally get to, like, meet Steven Tyler after like a year, you know, and um, me and the roadie, we're getting everything set up and we're just kind of telling jokes. And you know how roadies are like the most depraved people on earth, like their sense of humor is just foul. And uh, especially that that era or like that generation of roadie, like those crusty old gross, just like scumbags. Uh, anyway, so we're telling like increasingly gross jokes, just kind of cracking each other up. And then Steven walks in and he sees us laughing and he's like, he's like a real friendly, like he wants to be part of the gang. You know, he's like a cool guy. And he's like, hey guys, what's going on? What's what's happening? And and the, the, the guitar tech's like, oh, we're just telling jokes. And Steven's like, I love jokes. Let me hear your joke. And so the the guitar tech who very knowingly was setting me up for a spectacular failure. And I didn't know this because I was green as hell and just didn't know any better. But I was like, I was like, cool, let me tell you my joke. So I tell it. I won't repeat it on air. It's terrible. It's funny, but it's terrible. And Steven just gives me this look of disgust. He doesn't even crack a smile. And he goes, that's fucking disgusting, man. I have kids. 
And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is my first, I hadn't even told him my name yet. Like, this is like literally my the, Amazing. the first impression. And it was just like, my heart sunk. I was like, I'm such an asshole. I'm so fucking Bush League. I'm so green. Like, and I look over at the, the guitar tech who's just cracking up. He's like, cause he knew he, he'd set me up for this to like completely just crush me. And he was delighting in his victory. And I looked over at him like, can you bail me out? Like, what do you do? And he came to my rescue by telling a far more depraved joke that sort of distracted Steven's attention. And all of a sudden everything was cool and we went about our day, but it was a valuable lesson to, to think like, okay, don't, think that you know these people because you don't and you could it's so you know you 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 really got to sort of like especially within the first five seconds of meeting someone don't tell them a terrible dirty joke like (laughs) you know it's just sort of a just sort of a bad move uh and i I don't know if that was that wasn't so much a punisher move as much as it was just like an ignorant you know an ignorant cocky 20 something year old kid move but uh it hurt man it hurt bad i was like i was just i felt like such an asshole the thing that punishers have that I think is, uh, uh, I guess, parallel to what you just described is, is a lack of, uh, it's a lack of awareness. Yeah. Uh, it's a lack of awareness for how you're coming off to other people. Right. So, um, so yeah, I think that, I think that one of the ways to fix it is to develop self-awareness. Yeah. Self-awareness and to like try to be more sensitive to how other people are feeling. Yeah. Not I don't mean like their grand feelings. I mean like how do they feel in that moment. In the moment. Like, are yeah. They comfortable. Are they uncomfortable? Like it's a huge studio skill. Just reading people and knowing how you can I mean we've all had the situation where the intern says the exact wrong thing in a totally innocent way, you know? Yes. Like the thing where the, the intern goes, "Oh man, you sound just like Danzig. And the singer goes, I fucking hate Danzig. And you're like, whoa, whoops, he blew it. Now the vibe's done. Like now the singer is not doing vocal takes for the rest of the day or something. Or they're going to, the band wants to scrap the song or, you know, that, that I mentioned Danzig, not because I have anything against Danzig, but because that literally happened on one of my sessions. So it's uh, top of mind, as you might say. That's the reason that uh, one of the first studio rules for new interns is don't say anything. Don't talk. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about being a dick or controlling them. It's about saving them from putting you in a position where you got to send them home. Like they got to learn what the etiquette is before they can speak because artists are artists are fragile, man. That's They're like, sensitive creatures, man. They are. They, they really are. And recording sessions be. are weird. It's a, the recording studio is a really strange environment. It's not comfy for most people. Like, you know, I, I always tell my interns, look, you know, we come to the studio every day. We're so used to being in a recording studio. Most of our clients are lucky to be here once a year or once every two years. And they're only in here for a few days at a time. We're in here seven days a week. You, you got to remember to how to like empathize with just like what a nerve wracking, expensive, unnatural position we're putting them in. And absolutely the level of comfort that I feel in a recording studio is so out of sync with how uncomfortable a lot of musicians are going to be coming into the studio. You just, you can't take that for granted. You got to remember that this is a really foreign experience for most people. Like most people don't sit in a control room, you know, 80 hours a week. Hey everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, 
Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, and Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one -on -one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. And not only is it an uncomfortable thing for them, but it's also a very personal thing and a very important thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's the thing that they've been working towards for a long time. Even if they're veterans, like they still worked on this stuff for a while. Sure. It's their, it's their voice. So making comments like that that don't take their comfort into account or whatever it means that you've got someone in there that's not respecting the situation. And it might not be a deliberate disrespect. Mm, certainly not. But they don't respect, they don't, it's a disrespect. Like it's a, usually it's an innocent disrespect, yes. but they're, it's a disrespect in that they don't, they're not understanding how important this is to that person. And uh, they don't have enough reverence for it. And it throws the whole thing off. And so, yeah, that's why, you know, listen more than you speak yep. in these situations and observe. And over time, you'll figure out uh, the appropriate way to behave. Yeah. It's very important. I've had situations where artists will tell me, please don't let this guy come back. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 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 And they always feel bad about it, too. It's not like they, they're not trying to be dicks, but like, if someone throws off their vibe, like they, you know, they're like, it's just like, dude, like I can't get into it with that guy around. It just yeah. weirds me out. Yeah. And so then puts me in the position of having to tell that guy not to come back. But, you know, it, I will do that if I have to. Yeah, you got to. I mean, this, that's your, your, your allegiance is to the client, not to the intern. So you do what you got to do. Absolutely. So if someone wants to intern for you, how do they go about it? Well, I ask first for a cover letter and a resume, which is the same thing any employer in any field of work would be expected to ask you for. So would you do this so that you to actually like read it or do you? Do no, it? no, I barely even look at them. That's what I thought. Okay. I usually glance over the cover letter just to just to try to get a sense if what a lot of people will do is they'll make 
a really generic cover letter and just fill in certain pieces of information to to be specific to the studio they're applying for. And that's always so transparent. Um, but I, I don't fault them for that. Everyone's going to do that. I'm, I'm guilty of having done that sort of thing before. And, you know, you just kind of, but if you can't do that minimum amount of work, it's automatic disqualification, you know? Um, the resumes, I usually don't even look at them. Uh, I'll sometimes glance at them if I'm doing an interview with the kid right before they show up. I'll take a quick look just to maybe get a sense if there's any interesting questions I can ask them. Or um, I also kind of, one one important thing is that a lot of times people will, in their in their resumes will include all these details about like the friend's band that they recorded and that sort of thing which to me is a little bit of a red flag. It's not like a deal breaker, but it's having, you know, being in close proximity to Berkeley College of Music, where I think you and I both went. You went there, right? Sure did. Okay. Yeah, I know I might be divulging uh, secret information by accident, but... Oh, it's not secret. Okay, cool. I didn't know, you know, some people have a weird hang up about I actually, that reminds me, I have a funny story to tell you about that, but actually related to this. Oh, but, cool. Uh, finish what you're saying and then I'll tell you. Berkeley interns, in my experience, Berkeley does a great job with teaching the technical stuff. They're not very good at teaching the etiquette. And a lot of people will come into an internship eager to prove what they know, which is not the point of the internship. The point of the internship is to learn. I don't care what you know until I need you to maybe do tasks for me. But that has nothing to do with your first you know, couple of weeks as an intern. So revealing that you recorded your friend's EP is of not only is it of no value to me because it it you know in in terms of professional record making it's without value it also suggests that maybe you might come in with a little chip on your shoulder cuz you feel like you know what you're talking about and that can be a little bit of a red flag and again it's not a deal breaker and i i don't want to sound like some weird hard ass who's got like who's got it out for people who've like it's cool that it's cool that people make records with their friends and obviously it's good experience and we all did it and it's important but it doesn't relate to the job of the intern and 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 including that on your resume can suggest a fundamental misunderstanding of what the job of the intern is. So Absolutely. when I see that on a resume, I, I, I sometimes I get a little like prickly about it. What's funny to me about cover letters is I don't really read them either for details of what the person's done. What I'm trying to get a sense of is do they understand like on a deeper level what what it is that they're getting into or what they're trying to do. So for instance, I'm trying to find a new podcast editor right now. And so I've asked a bunch of people to email me and include their resume and stuff. And lots of people, I've gotten lots of submissions, like over 75. And an instant disqualifier are the people who put too much in the cover email or letter, Mm -hmm. uh, who are way too formal about it, and who it's like they're trying to get a a job at Microsoft. That immediately tells me that they are taking this way too seriously. And and, But what's weird is I need them to take it seriously, (laughs) but there's like something that they don't understand about what a podcast is. Like, it's way too formal of a response. However, what's interesting, though, is that obviously I need them to take it seriously. Obviously, they need to know what they're doing. But one of the key things about editing a podcast is that you have to understand 
what the normal flow of a conversation should be like. And you had to be able to intellectually grasp uh, not just the words that we're saying, but the feel of the conversation. Right. Kind of like with a drum editor, you can't just, it's not just about knowing how to use Beat Detective or Elastic Audio or manually cutting things up. You have to have a musical maturity to be able to understand what it is that the drummer was intending. Right. And like if you're altering the feel, you have to understand what the feel was supposed to be or should be like you it's not just cutting things up and lining them up yeah and so if the cover letter comes in way too formal uh it's like they're overdressing for the situation and they just don't get it mm -hmm. obviously at the same time if it's way too lax then i get the vibe that they're not going to take this seriously enough and can go fuck themselves <laughs> uh but to your point about berkeley so when I was at Berkeley, uh, this is what got me into recording. I did not study recording at Berkeley. Uh, I had a band. I wanted to get us recorded. So I went around town to all the studios to that did any rock or metal to kind of price out an album. And after two said this to me, I never said it again, but two different engineers uh, at these studios were like, let me give you some advice because uh, you seem cool and not like the rest of them, but don't tell people around here that you go to Berkeley. Yeah. I was like, why? And it's like, because uh, the Berkeley people have a bad reputation in Boston because they come in acting like know-it-alls and they're real tough to work with. And so don't, just don't do it. Like, because you're cool and you seem all right. And I don't want people to to prejudge you badly, just don't tell them you go to Berkeley because the, the Berkeley people are notorious around Boston for just being arrogant and acting like they know everything and just super cocky, yeah. tough to deal with. Yep, that's <laughs> it's totally true. That attitude has shifted a little bit. There's not as much of a negative association with Berkeley students and graduates as there used to be. Actually, the Berkeley students have done a pretty good job of kind of like getting involved in the actual Boston music scene a lot better than they were when we were in school. So now there's a little bit more of just a mix of, the, you know, you'll just go to a show, see a band, and there'll be a bunch of Berkeley kids in that band. And it's not like, they're not necessarily like a quote unquote Berkeley band. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a cool thing. Uh, but there is still a bit of uh, a chip on the shoulder of many Berkeley students who come in for internships here. I, I won't speak to the musicians who come in record here because uh, that's as, as much of a mixed bag as anything. I don't think Berkeley has anything to do with it. I think that anytime you're dealing with musicians, you know, some people come in with attitudes, some don't, and it's you just kind of deal with it. You know, it's part of the gig. Well, I was going in as a musician um, because actually uh, I didn't want to be an engineer yet. Right. Uh, and... But like he he was just saying, just don't tell people you go there. Right, um, right. But I, I'm glad to hear that it's changed some. Yeah. Actually, the when I priced it out, it was going to be like 30 grand, basically, mm -hmm. no matter where I went to really do it right. That's what got me started recording. I was like 19 or 20 yeah, or something. Yeah, that's a lot like, of money. It's like, how <laughs> am I going to find 30 grand? Yep. Because I wasn't willing to take my band in for like a weekend and make an album. I knew how that shit turned out. Right. Um, I wanted to do it right. And so it was like, well, 
guess I better learn how to do this. Yep, yep. But, okay, so it starts with, you know, so you start filtering them out actually through a cover letter and resume. But, like, what are you looking for past that? So what happens next? So if if they, you know, pass the cover letter and resume test, which, frankly, many of them don't, a lot of people just don't even include those things. Um, when I reply to them to try to set up some times and just get a little more information, I ask several questions, some of which are actually important, like, When's a good time for you to come in for an interview? What days are you available to work? That sort of thing. And then I usually throw in a question that's kind of silly, like just to see if they're paying attention. Like, what's your favorite color? Or, you know, some something nonsensical. And that's sort of another layer of f- filtering out people who aren't paying close attention. Because um, as far as my, my as far as I'm concerned, an internship is a very detail-oriented job. You got to really be kind of like on top of managing details and paying a close attention to to those sorts of things. So with 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 that second round of of questions, I'm usually able to filter out a few more people, and then the people who you know advance past that. I'll just set up interviews with them. And then it's just a matter of sitting down with them, talking to them, trying to get a sense of their personality type or general sort of vibe is a good fit for, for my studio, for studios in general, for interaction with artists. You know, like we were saying earlier, we don't want, we don't want an intern who's going to vibe the artist out or act weird or make them uncomfortable. Uh, so I, you know, we've got a certain general vibe at this studio that I, I like to try to cultivate and the interns are a part of that. So I choose them accordingly. And skills-wise, how important for you is their level of technical audio skills? And the reason I'm wondering is because a lot of the people that we've had on are perfectly okay with someone that's got not that many audio skills developed if they've got the right personality because they figure they'll teach them the skills. Yes, yes, that's exactly the boat that I'm in. I've hired people who have literally no studio experience, no musical experience. I One of my best interns of all time was a young woman who was going to Boston University and studying um, television production. And she knocked me out on her interview because, you know, she's not a musician. She's never spent any time in studio. She has no interest in audio as in terms of doing it herself. And she told me all that straight up. And I'm like, so what, what are you doing here, you know? And she said, well, my goal in my career is to be a, a writer for television and, and ultimately a director and a producer for television shows. And I want to know every single how every single aspect of the entire process works. And since I know nothing at all about audio and they don't teach it at school, I thought it'd be really cool to intern at a recording studio just so that I can learn a little bit about how to interact with musicians, with voiceover talent, and just learn a little bit of the technical stuff um, on the job. And I was so blown away by that answer. I was like, you're hired. That's awesome. That's so cool and so mature. She was like 18 too. I was like, I can't believe you're thinking in those terms at your age. I just thought that was so awesome. And she turned out to be a great intern. She was just so on point. And the honesty is great. It was awesome. I I mean, really, it it just knocked me out. It was one of the, not only one of the best interns I had, that was one of the best interviews I've ever done. Everything she said, I was like, I can't believe you're saying this to me. Like you're, you're just, you're so thoughtful and cool. I, I was like, I need to have you here as intern, you know? And she was, like I said, she was great. She completely lived up to my expectations. That's awesome. Yeah. What about then getting hired for money? How does that work? Like, do you put out a call? Like, I mean, do you put out uh, now hiring for engineers or do you hire them from your interns? Um, we don't actually technically have any staff at all. So everyone, including me, working there in an engineering context is self-employed independent contractor 
sort of thing. So the the paid gigs come from, for example, today, my intern who's just doing her first session, she has proven herself to be super competent and very professional. And when we get a cold call in and it's a session that I either can't or don't want to do, in this case, I just didn't have time for it because I'm doing the illustrious URM podcast with my good friend Ayal, whose name I pronounced correctly. Loser. So I, I just, I, I have her do it. So she gets, she gets the call <clears throat> to take the session in that case. And, um, she'll get paid for it. You know, the same, same rate that I get paid, which is, you know, not too shabby. Okay. So it basically, it, once they're at a certain level of skill, uh, it's more like you feel comfortable passing them work when, you know, uh, when the situation is appropriate. Exactly. And in, in, in other cases too, like, um, we have certain, um, certain clients who are, who will pay for an assistant. We try to groom all the interns to be capable as assistants, you know, and, and they come in for their internship days and they may technically be doing assisting duties, but whenever possible, uh, I try to get clients to book sort of an official assistant. And in that case, um, we'll pick the best of our interns to be an assistant that day. Um, and and at, a certain, at a certain point, we just start calling them assistant engineers. Like I have um, one former intern who's now just an assistant. That's what I mean, actually. Like, that's actually what I meant by my question. Like, mm-hmm. not when do they move on to being like an official employee in like the legal sense. I meant more like at what point do you start giving them those opportunities. Like I see. The opportunity to get hired by someone renting the studio or where you feel comfortable enough to give them the work that you can't do or don't want to do. Right, right. Well, with assistants, it's, um, you know, a different skill set than it is with engineers. So I, you know, I, I might be inclined to give someone an engineering gig before giving them an assistant gig, which seems counterintuitive, but there's just, you know, the skills are different. And I have certain interns who kind of like maybe suck at assisting, <laughs> but have shown really good skill and, and proclivity for engineering. And so there's not like a there's not like a particular marker that we have in place for that sort of thing. It's it's kind of just feeling out where they're at, how they act on their internship sessions. That kind of gives me a little bit of a clue as to how they'll perform, um, you know, in a professional context, like as you know, a, 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 in the driver's seat, as it were. Um, and we kind of go from there. So it's not so formal as would make a neat and tidy answer to your question. It's really kind of a little bit looser than that. Well, that's why I was asking, because I don't think it ever is neat and tidy. Right. It kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier with like opportunities, because there isn't necessarily like a set trajectory or ladder or, um, you know, series of markers that everyone's going to follow. It's kind of like, there's just going to be an opportunity. Like for example, today with my intern, I, there was a session that got, it was a cold call. This guy wanted to come in and record some organ and, um, this intern of mine happened to be available. So I said, cool, you're the engineer on this one. Take it, you know, and we'll see, and we'll see how she does. If she does a great job, which I expect she will, then, um, next time someone calls me, she's going to be, what, what do you call it? Top of mind, front of mind. What's it? Top of, top, top of mind. Yeah. She'll be, she'll be top of mind. She'll have done consistent, good work in a timely fashion. So that's, that's kind of, you know, she's sort of thrust herself into a, um, you know, into a, into another potential level of usefulness to us at the studio. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes perfect sense. That's a really good answer, actually. So we were talking earlier about negative shit that 
the internet does mm-hmm. to you know to give people you know a false sense of what success is but um another thing that the internet has done and hey it's great for me uh i know that not everybody agrees that it's great for engineers everywhere i have my own theories as to why it's great for engineers everywhere mm-hmm. but um but it is true that a lot of the bigger facilities are becoming extinct because they're no longer as needed as they were like and the budgets are not as high as they used to be and also there's you know people need studios for less stuff right because there's more and more people who you know just like back in the day you had to go to a studio even to do pre-pro sure um now that's not necessarily a thing i mean some bands do it but you know that's increasingly becoming rare now personally i think it's a good thing because i remember back in the day that local studios were fucking terrible right so um you have very few options and they did a terrible job and so this is kind of going to force people to really get great if they're going to stay in business it's going to raise the bar so i think it's fine but that said, I do understand that for studio owners, it makes shit more difficult. It just does. It's right. going to. Like the fact that there's so many people, like stuff like URM, uh, you know, we're helping a lot of people get a lot better. It does have an effect on the marketplace, but then there's always people like you who are thriving regardless. Well, there's ways to, there's ways to, to, continue to make yourself useful in that environment. For example, when a band hits me up to do a record and they have too small of a budget to um, use the studio exclusively, which is often the case, uh, you start looking for creative ways to make the record happen and you you know, we, this, the, the studio will still get booked to do drums. No, no one's going to get a better drum sound in the rehearsal space than I can get in my control in my live room. That's probably true of a lot of studios. Hopefully, yes. You just need a big, good-sounding room to, to get good drum tracks. Uh, on the other hand, you don't need a big, good-sounding room to get great-sounding guitar tracks. In fact, you don't need a room at all if you're comfortable with amp sims or that sort of thing. So, the more important role in that case might be the producer to make sure that the performances are tight and the guitars are in tune and um, the tones become less important because you can tweak them with a plug-in if you're if you're going in the box Um, even if you're even if you're still micing up an amp if you're not you don't need a big room because the mic is you know an inch away from the cone so the room isn't all that much of a factor Um, so you can do that in a rehearsal space without huge hassle um, or you can do it at home in your basement or whatever Um, and and in that way if you're able to sort of finesse those situations and and navigate that style of production, you can stay really busy and, you know, keep getting paid and make lots and lots of records and just figure out where the, where the resources are best allocated. So basically what you're saying is if you stick to the old model trying to fulfill the needs of people in 1995, then you're going to lose. But if you do a great job fulfilling the needs of people in 2019... You'll be all right. Exactly. Yeah, this this is the this is the era that we live in now and it's, you know, adapt or die. It's funny because as a studio owner, yeah, it's it it's it means theoretically less business, you know, where um we're we're doing we're not doing records top to bottom 100% of the time anymore. Now we're doing maybe just drums. 
Uh, on the other hand, as a producer or as an engineer or mixer, it's an improvement to business because now I can say, okay, you've got X number of dollars for budget. We can actually get away with recording for cheaper, which means I can spend more time mixing or I can take a bigger production fee or whatever. You know, like you can turn that into a way to actually make more money. Um, so as uh, the, the producer engineer side of me is kind of psyched about it. Um, whereas maybe the studio owner side of me is like, ah, damn it. But the flip side of that is that we keep making quality records. So the studio keeps getting booked. So it's actually not, we're still, we're still booking, you know, six days a week at least. So maybe it's six drum sessions with six different artists, but it's still keeping us booked. And meanwhile, I'm, I'm fulfilling really cool projects and, you know, making, making the money that I need to make to pay all my bills. So one of the ways that I found to really make it work for me was if a band would come in with a uh, budget that they wanted to do like a full record, but their budget was just insufficient. Um, I'll talk them into doing a single or yeah, two, yep. you know, and like really going for it on that so that we could put all our energy into one thing or two things. And that way the output coming from my place would stay high, like quality wise. Right. Um, it would never diminish because I feel like the most important thing in this environment is that you never put out anything bad. Yes. Uh, that you you got, because of the environment we're in, um, yes, it's true. There's more competition, but that's okay. That's totally fine. But you do need to understand that there is more competition. So you have, you can't do like they did in the nineties and just, fuck around like a lot of studios did look a lot of studios fucked around in the 90s <laughs> like i remember going to the studio to get my band recorded and like the fucking engineer would be so high on heroin that he would just go to sleep on the on the couch while we were tracking and stuff and like several different studios my experience was that people were just coasting by because yeah. you know they were one of three places in town that worked at that budget level and all the bands went to them and you can't do that anymore you cannot fuck around well you know what what happens what, what i've found over the last it's been probably 10 years that i've been i've been hearing this kind of story but a lot of bands will try going to the cheaper studio have that terrible experience and then come back and go man we we blew it on the last record we went somewhere we ended up paying more than we wanted to pay or than we thought we'd pay because everything took so much longer and we still aren't happy with the result and we should have just come to you come back to you in the first place and you know spent what seemed like more money at first to get the job done right and then and been happy with it you know exactly so with with more competition comes much you know it comes more hacky schlocky work and um if you're good, that can actually work in your favor. Like the, the, the added competition can work in your favor. It does work in your favor. The other thing is that it's still as equally difficult to get great as it ever was. You know, there's still very few people who will ever get great. Sure. There's a way more hacks and way more mediocre people than ever before. But that gives you that much more of an opportunity to stand out if you're really good. Right. And... I hear this a lot from P 
people who don't have a career yet about it being oversaturated. Like, it's funny. It's like also like the people that I see complaining the most about musicians not getting paid are typically musicians who are not good enough to get paid anyways. Right. Um, So, you know, a lot of the people talking about things being oversaturated uh, typically are not good enough to really be getting paid for much stuff anyways. And what I've noticed is there's not that many people that are actually good enough to where, you know, if like some guy on Nail the Mix, one of our mixers, hits me up, and this happens often, hits me up asking for someone to save them on some edits. Like like their engineer is sick or quit or right. some, whatever happened. Right. Do So I get hit up a lot in those situations just because, you know, uh, I know a lot of people who want to move up in this world. And despite having thousands and thousands of students at URM and then knowing all the engineers I do outside of URM, I can still count on one hand the number of people that I would feel comfortable recommending to a big shot. Right. And that and it's been like that for years. I back it, before URM, I could only count on one hand the number of engineers that I would feel comfortable recommending to a big shot. I'm very very careful about making recommendations. And so it's like yeah, there's a lot more engineers, but there's not that many more great engineers like being great still takes takes something that most people won't do along the same lines i'm i'm sort of of the mind that being great or even being good is actually less important than being um competent and professional and cool oh well that too yeah well i count that in there by the way when i say being great i see my definition of being great is not just the musical skills it's all of it like so when i recommend somebody i'm not going to recommend them if they're a musical genius who can't get shit done on right. time like great to me means they can get it done on time they're cool and the music part is top level but even your recommendations aside i think back about when i first started doing records professionally and you know they didn't sound that good like objectively i, I just i was learning you know i was i was young and inexperienced yeah. and and learning but i you know, I wasn't conked out on heroin on the couch and that seemed to <laughs> help a lot. You know, that was a, uh-huh. uh, one of the bars that I had to clear and I'd cleared it. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was good at communication and I was enthusiastic about the projects and so on and so forth. And those things get you a lot farther than being able to make the record sound like it was mixed by Michael Brower. And I'm sure local bands are probably more forgiving. I, I think that the higher up, you know, the higher level client you deal with, the less this is true, but bands are much more um, concerned with the experience and how they feel about how the record is made and how it comes out than with strictly how it sounds. Not to mention that I'm not sure that musicians are always great at objectively picking apart the sonics of a record. Um, certainly, I, I believe that certainly because I don't think that the records I was making sounded that good. And yet people would say, hey, man, that record sounds great. Like, okay, cool. I think you feel good about the, the experience you had. And so that you you have a positive association with the record when you listen to it, it sounds great because of that. But I'm not going to actually argue with them about it because that was the thing that was keeping me, you know, keeping me employed all those years. Well, also with locals who aren't that developed musically, I mean, if their ears are 
developed to a point where they think their own music is great enough to record. True. Yeah. Then their ears aren't that developed. Right. <laughs> That's plain, straight up. So they don't need a Michael Brower level mix to be happy. Yeah. Um, you know, like they they're happy with a mix that's appropriate for where they're at, mm-hmm. which is important for a lot of people listening to understand that you don't need to be Michael Brower level in order to, you know, get your career going at this. All you need to do is be competent enough in your area to where you can do something competitive for the band's in your area and then of course you'll improve from there but you know if you have no clients you're not going to suddenly start getting nickel back you're going to have to work your way up and you just need to make sure that what you can do at this point in time is competitive for the level you're going for i got some advice that i would like to share that i always give to all my interns don't fuck up yeah exactly don't fuck up uh the fact of the matter is for 99 out of 100 20 year olds, they're not going to be good at mixing, um, on a technical level, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to have the technical facility to like, you know, create a deep sound stage and separate the bass from the kick and do all that kind of stuff that we on the internet and in the engineering circles kind of talk up and, and make out to be very important. Um, but what you can be good at is if you have innate good musical sensibilities, you can do something that's musical and that's going to translate across every playback system it's gonna it's gonna hit every listener it doesn't have to um like you don't have to nail the low end what you do have to nail is the feeling of impact uh and that's a lot more important than um you know how how much 8k you put on the snare or something like that and i will say that for as long as my records sounded pretty terrible when i was starting out i i do have good musical sensibilities so i created musical mixes and that's what i think people were actually responding to so you know it's pretty easy to to watch uh, and i know I'm, I'm talking to a guy who has an online school so uh i hope this doesn't sound dismissive of what you do because i actually think that what you guys do you're doesn't sound like it's dissing us you're, you're the absolute best at it and i actually really admire your whole oh, approach you. I, I think it's super cool and i to this day I, I still watch your videos you know you, you kindly gave me that account and i watch those videos and I, and I learn a lot watching these things i think they're cool but when you're just starting out it's really easy to get bogged down in the technique and in in the approach and in the tools and absolutely those are the things that actually really matter the least i mean if you you, you should just sit down and go like I, I've I've put together this balance before you're even thinking about you know frequencies or compression or any of that stuff. You just put the faders up and you go. Does this balance feel good? Like, does it feel exciting? And is it moving? And does it have you know sort of internal movement and 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 impact? And if you can do that before you even touch an EQ or a compressor, you've you kind of already have a good mix. And from there, it's just polishing it. And um, those musical things are, I don't know if you can, I actually wonder if you, if they're teachable, you know, if you can. They're not. And by the way, that's not a diss at all. That's actually, as a matter of fact, I routinely uh, will issue challenges to people on Nail the Mix, for instance, to, to submit plug-in free mixes. Because one of the problems that they have is overcooking these tracks. Oh, yeah. Like, because they'll get, oh, for instance, like, I don't know, are you familiar with Jens Bogren or Opeth? I am, yeah, chance? yeah. I was actually, I had, okay. I had some emails with Jens kind of recently about a tape machine we're selling. <laughs> okay, well, so then you know how good he is. He's amazing, um, yeah. 
Yeah. So have you checked out the Opeth tracks that we had on? If not, you should. Yeah. Okay. Just uh, because they're fucking pristine. Awesome. But like, so you put them on and it already sounds great. Just, I mean, and then he did on his nail, the mix, he did a lot to make them even sound better, but they already sound great. Like they're phenomenal. They're so well engineered and the band is so damn good. And people were submitting mixes uh, that were worse yeah. than the track sounds just faders up. And so it's like, guys, you are fucking up and you're fucking up because you're overcooking. You're not even, you're not understanding the musicality of this whole thing. So I want you to start from scratch and give me a faders and pan knob only mix. Uh, I do that a lot. Let me reveal the ultimate mixing technique that I do. It's the single most important part of the entire process. Put aside all the side chaining and subgroups and parallel, whatever. The very first thing I do when I'm starting to mix is I do faders and pans, and then I print it. And I set it, you know, I, I don't know how you how you work when you're mixing, but I, I just print back to a track in Pro Tools, and I just leave it yeah. in, in input mode. What I do is uh-huh. I, I print this faders and pans mix back into Pro Tools, and as I start to mix, I'll just toggle in and out. All I have to do is hit the input button and I can listen to this fader and pan mix I did. And no matter how good I get the mix going, there's always something in that fader and pan mix that's better. And I always hear it and then I can kind of reverse engineer, okay, what did I do? I overcooked something or there was a musical item that I kind of gut reacted to when I was building that rough mix that I've lost. I've, I've lost sight of it and I need to f- find it because it's powerful and it works. And leaving the faders and pan mix in your session to just refer back to is the just most eye-opening, kind of ear-washing, <laughs> humbling thing you can do. It's huge and you should, everyone should do it. There's no reason not to. I totally agree. I mean, you would be amazed how much worse some of these mixes get from just the faders up. Um, and these are tracks that some of these are real tough to make sound bad. Yeah. Like, you know, some of these, if not just about all of them are engineered super, super well. I mean, you know, it's like the best recording, the best bands, like it's going to sound great. Yep. So it's kind of on, it's yours to fuck up, but People will fuck them up. I would not be surprised because I've been guilty of doing that myself. So, <laughs> As have we all. Yeah. That's how I know what's going on is because I made all these mistakes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Have you checked out our fast tracks at all? I kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah. like, with pros, I don't expect anyone to have ever checked out our stuff because I figured, like, a pro such as yourself or someone who's done Nail the Mix... Uh, you know, like you're busy making records and all that stuff. So if you have the time to check out something we do, I, I'm honored. But like, so that's why I always ask. Like, I don't assume. No, I'm I'm also a dork who, when there's nothing good on Netflix, I like I like to put on the the Nail the Mix channel and just watch cool stuff. I, I just actually just watched a um a drum editing video. I forget what the engineer's name was. Um, but it was it was you know it was one of your guys and. It was great. And I, I fancy myself a pretty damn good drum editor. And I picked up a bunch of cool, just little tricks where I was like, oh, yeah, that's really cool. Was it the Pro Tools one? Yeah, he'd set up a bunch of macros to do a bunch oh, of. yeah. Yeah, and it was awesome. And he had like, you know, he had he had the macros prog- programmed into his mouse. And I was looking at that going, man, you know, that's there's there, there was a couple little techniques that I'm like, you know, that would work 
that would I could do that in my workflow. It wouldn't it wouldn't disrupt my current workflow because of course now I'm stuck in my ways and I have certain things I do. Like I I do things differently than he does them and I like the way I do them better because I'm familiar with it. But he had all these little cool tricks within his own workflow that would easily translate into mine and I've been using them. I've been actually doing a bunch of cool stuff with, I watched um, Machines Lamb of God nail the mix and I've been doing trigger spikes. That one's great. Oh my <laughs> God. I've, I've been doing key spikes like a maniac now. Even, even when Kurt was at Mad Oak, he was doing a bunch of cool stuff with MIDI. Um, and that started me with MIDI. So it, there's always more to learn. Um, and I actually think it's pretty good to every now and then reassess how you do things because there are a lot of people who are better than you. Also people who maybe aren't better than you, but still have cool ideas. And that's not to say that any of those guys aren't better. I don't mean to imply that at all. Um, those guys all kick my ass. But what I mean is that there's a lot to learn out there. Uh, and it's important to keep an open mind. So I don't, I don't have any... I, I think every pro should watch all of your videos, not all of them necessarily, but there, there's a lot of value in them and a lot to be learned. Um, even if you're pretty advanced, you're going to, you're going to pick up one little technique and go, Oh shit, that's really cool. Like I can, I can use that. I do think that our stuff is equally cool for advanced people as it is for beginners. But with beginners, there's uh we're actually about to start making real beginner content because I realize we don't have anything that's like for true beginners mm -hmm. and it could probably be really overwhelming um, because some of, I mean, you know, Machine Lama God is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen as far as mix instruction goes, but that's some pretty advanced stuff. Yeah. Like it's, we understand it, but like we understand it. Can you imagine a beginner watching that? That it would be like us probably sitting down at a physics lecture right. or something. It just, it's some pretty advanced stuff. Oh, and that Pro Tools thing that you watched, that's with a guy named John Douglas, who actually, uh, he used to be my assistant. And mm. um, he's a great, great engineer. He, uh, like, I've known that kid since he was 15. And, like, he came up under me and then moved on to working with, like, lots of, lots of really, really great uh, producers. And he's just, he's just awesome. But... One of the things that I always admired about him was, so he went to Georgia Tech for some sort of computer science degree. And you can tell because of how he approaches editing. But I feel like he's got such an interesting grasp of Pro Tools that even if you've been using Pro Tools for 15 years, he'll have something that can help optimize your your workflow. He totally did. Yeah. And I, I'm, you know, I, I fancy myself a bit of a pro tools wizard. You didn't really get, you didn't get to see me in action because we were just doing Kurt's thing, but I'm really fast. That's like kind of one of my things that I'm known for. I'm very quick on pro tools. And I was still watching his presentation and going, Oh, that's fucking slick. Now I'm going to be a little faster. You know, that stuff's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it back to what we were originally talking about with beginners, oh, um, yeah. and not overcooking. So, we've taken a lot of steps to combat that because I understand there's different types of techniques that become trendy or untrendy at different times. So like when we were starting this, the big thing was mid-side mm -hmm. processing, mm -hmm. which, you know, is very powerful. You can do a lot of crazy, awesome things, but you can very quickly destroy a mix too, like because of you know, phase issues that it causes. Like there's a lot of potential for damage right. with MS processing, but that was like, 
the trend online where all the beginners were like going nuts about it. You know, parallel compression was another one. That parallel compression kills me, man. It's like you're you're learning the advanced technique before you just learn how to use a compressor. Yeah. And I feel like I, that my interns are all about, they all love parallel compression. And I'm like, you guys, well, who doesn't? Who, yeah, it's, it's very satisfying. But what happens is they parallel compress everything. And I'm like, you guys don't know how to use a compressor. You only know how to compress in parallel. And it's, it's not because it's because you don't want to make a decision. You know, it's like, you're faking yourself out here. You're saying, well, as long as I blend some original, I can't fuck it up too bad. And it's like, well, you, you may have actually just fucked it up worse because not everything needs parallel compression. It doesn't, it's not a silver bullet. And I think it actually, the, you know, the, I think one of the hardest things to learn in, in record making is how to listen for compression. And if you just jump right into parallel compression, you, you never really learn how to listen for it. Absolutely. So we've made a, so when people go to our enhanced level um, where they're getting the fast tracks, uh, I believe that whenever someone like you gets access, I'll go in and remove all the prerequisites because I feel bad (laughs) making one of my peers like sit through like the very, very basic ones. But we make them sit through mix prep first Mm -hmm. and then gain staging and then balance and then EQ before they can get to any of the like sexy stuff. Yeah. Like they have to go through those, Um, you know, before we get to any of them involving plugins, they've had to do one about balance and they've had to do one about gain staging because, um, if not, they'll skip that shit and they'll go straight for the sexy stuff. And we have one actually that's a prerequisite for a lot of stuff called hearing compression. I've actually watched that whole series. I liked it. It was it was good. We're going to do one that's basic about like uh, what compression is and like because we actually don't have one like that. Mm. So we're going to do one like that. But the thing that we thought was missing out there is that with all the explanations you can find online for compression... And, you know, all the different things that people say you can do with it. I've never really seen something that just shows you what, how to actually listen for it, how to actually hear it when it's happening and what the differences are. Like people describe those differences, but if you can't actually associate a sound with a parameter, it's kind of pointless. Right. Um, so I find that a lot of people could tell you, like, if you quiz them, they could write down a definition of like threshold and attack and release and all that stuff, but they wouldn't be able to spot, uh, a spot it if like, you know, you have like slow, slow attack, fast release on a, you know, on your drum bus, like they wouldn't be able to spot that. And so wanting to make something that would help people spot it. And granted, we did it with Outboard and it's a little different with uh, with uh, in the box plugins, but uh, we wanted to make it drastic to where like you could really hear the difference. This is why I use the Distressor and stuff. And the, the Distressor is also the best learning compressor ever made, I think. I, that sure is. Any Anytime one of the kids at work asks me about compression that's i'm always like well let's plug in the distressor and i'll show you because that's the that's the one (laughs) it just does so much absolutely the other thing too is every once in a while well not every once in a while more often than not uh we'll nail the mix will happen 
and the person session will be pretty simple. Like mm-hmm. it, lots of tracks will have like one or two plugins on them and sometimes none. And a lot of these guys that are super sick, uh, they don't use that much processing. No, I mean, not at all. Not at all. Everyone, I mean, you do obviously like there are guys that use a ton of plugins like Taylor Larson's great. He uses a ton of plugins, but a lot of them don't. And uh, a lot of them are just masters of balance and of instead of doing a million moves, they do the four right moves. Right. And uh, and so whenever that happens, I take that opportunity to really like I really exploit it as much as I can to the community, um, really try to get them to understand that like it's not about doing a bunch of stuff unless you need to. Mm-hmm. But what it's really about is doing the right stuff. Much like when you watch one of those like shows with Gordon Ramsay where he goes and he rescues some kitchen and he'll make the same recipe as somebody else, something that they fucked up. And he'll use like five ingredients, right. like spaghetti, tomatoes, salt, olive oil, garlic, the end or something. And he'll make it and it'll be incredible. And I've gone to his restaurants. I know that his food is incredible, but he'll do it with like five or six ingredients. Whereas they tried to make the same dish with way more ingredients or and just totally fucked it up. Sure. And it just shows you that understanding the right amount and the right method for a few simple elements will get you way further than overdoing things. Right. It takes some maturity to get to that point though. That Yeah, that's maybe the key word. Yeah, I think so. So, hey, we've been on for a while uh, and I, you know, I don't want to take up six hours of your day. So we have, before we finish, we have some questions from the audience okay. I'd like to ask you. Cool. Stacy Smyers wondering, hey, Benny, how did you go about getting your studio off the ground? It seems like a monumental task that would require a lot more than just money in the beginning. I realized that we said that you partnered into this studio, but uh, maybe you could shed some light about how they got it off the ground or if you were involved at the beginning or just after the hiatus. Yeah, I could definitely speak more to coming back after the hiatus, but I, I, when I started in the, in the, in the first iteration, um, the place had been around for probably five years. It's tough to relate that to how things work today because back then there were not a lot of studios that were that well equipped. Um, there's still a lot more freelance engineers kind of happening around town. Um, there were still labels paying for records to get made. So talking about what happened you know, 12 years ago or 15 years ago doesn't really have anything to do with what's happening in 2018 or 2019. When we got the second place off off the ground, we definitely, we had a bunch of people come in for free sessions, which is something that I always encourage people to do, but to do it wisely, don't, don't invite your friend's band to come in and record for free. Invite a band that is going to, you know, attract other clients or give you some sort of notoriety or cachet. Uh, and get freelance engineers to come in and let them check the studio out, make, make them excited about booking it. Then you have more people book in the room. Um, and the, the, the whole objective at first is just to get people in the door. Uh, and it's not necessarily going to be a money-making venture uh, at first. Uh, we, we had the advantage of, you know, having a couple engineers who knew the studio and, and were bringing clientele in. 
if you're a person who's looking to start your own studio, you might want to kind of poke around town a little bit and find an engineer and say, Hey, look, I'm going to give you an awesome rate for the first six months, uh, to come work in my studio. And, you know, after that first six months, maybe we'll talk about what the new rate's going to be, but just to get not only bands, but also engineers and producers and just people in the door uh, and using the place so you can start building up a reputation. All right. Great. Thank you. Mike Jim Osborne is wondering, how do you go about managing Mad Oak? Do you do it yourself or do you have a studio manager? And also, how is your interaction with employees? Yeah, well, I do most of the management duties myself. So that's like booking, getting paid, um, you know, scheduling, all that kind of stuff. I'm the most well equipped to answer all the client emails because I'm nine out of 10 times, I'm going to be the, the person doing the engineering. And most of the scheduling revolves around my schedule uh, because you know, I'll be the person who's at studio doing the engineering. So to answer the question about studio management, I'm effectively the only studio manager. My partner, Craig, uh, he does a little bit of it. He does some like kind of administrative duties. And then we have our, our other partner, PK, who does a little bit of administrative duties and they, they, you know, they'll handle more financial stuff. So there's a split. Um, but the, you know, the studio calendar and the booking and the client relation stuff is mostly me with a little bit happening with them. All right, great. Um, let's see here. Ryan Carew says, hindsight is always twenty twenty. So now looking back, is there anything you would do differently in setting up your facilities? Was there much trial and error? <laughs> well, we talked a little bit earlier about how I had that really great opportunity between the two studio builds to freelance around town for a couple of years at a lot of different studios. So we were really kind of able to build the current iteration of the studio exactly as we wanted it and, and needed it. Um, that's a pretty rare opportunity. It's, it's tough to offer advice about... Um, if someone else is looking to build a studio, it's tough to offer advice on how they should do it because everyone... Everyone's got a different idea of what a good workflow is. But uh, I will say that when we were figuring out what to do with a new place, obviously I have all my preferences and I wanted to incorporate as many of them as possible. But I also talked to some of my other friends who freelance engineer and um, a few things were done not my ideal way because enough people told me, look, man, your way is great for you, but it's not great for everyone. Um, for example, the patch bay location, this is just one of those kind of boring things that, you know, it's, it's not very sexy, but it's a pretty crucial part of the workflow. I was really interested in having the patch bay way off to the side, way out of my way, because my attitude is I want to patch and then not think about the patch bay for the rest of the session. And if I have to think about the patch bay, I'm just going to tell the assistant engineer what they should do. I have a bunch of freelancers say, look, we're not going to have assistance every time. We like having the patch bay nearby. We don't know the gear as well, so we're not as likely to patch stuff in in advance. Um, they might be more likely to patch around, try a couple different things. So they'd rather have the patch bay close by. And I said, okay, you guys have convinced me. You know, they, they made good points about, about that kind of stuff. So there's a bunch of little examples of things like that where I have my preferences and then I kind of run it, you know, run those ideas uh, against friends of mine who I consider to be, you know, professionals with, with good insight and a lot of good experience and sort of just <laughs> average everything out and, and try to make the best experience, um, something that's great for me and for my clients. And then also something that's great for any freelancers that come in. I definitely have a lot of pride in that, in that Mad Oak is a sort of studio that you can 
as a freelance engineer, you can just walk into and it works and it's really simple. It's, there's not a whole lot of guesswork that you'd have to do. And not only is that good for the studio's reputation, it's also good for me personally because I don't have to be on the phone um, playing tech support to new freelance engineers. So, okay, so this question, I guess, kind of, you covered part of it with your last answer, but I guess this is kind of like springboarding off of the last question or your last answer from Ruben Sanchez. So how would you manage your studio to rent it as is so other producers would use it? How do you go about handling this? Um, well, we are really competitively priced. Our, our philosophy since before I worked there, this is the, the guy that started the studio had a philosophy that I've basically adopted because I it's proven itself to work, which is that it's better to have someone in the studio every single day uh, for a lower rate than have someone in the studio three or four days a month uh, for a higher rate. And that's worked out great for us. We are constantly booked. We're booked really far in advance and we're, we keep the price really affordable. Um, we do it because we want an excuse to keep the lights on. You know, we're paying the electric bill, so we may as well have someone in there using the studio. We do it because it's great to be able to provide artists a place that is affordable and really world-class for them to record. And it's also great because it keeps us all real busy. And, um, you know, like you were talking about earlier, you 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 don't want to get stagnant. You want uh, you want to high frequency of work. Uh, that means more people talking about your studio, more people using it. Uh, it kind of keeps you at the forefront of people's minds. All right. Michael Goodrich is wondering, what are some more obvious obstacles to running a business that can be overlooked by people just getting started? Um, well, the big obstacle that we face is um, we've spoken a few times about the um, saturation of of the sort of studio market. There's a lot of engineers and there's a lot of would-be engineers and there's a really, really wide range of experience. And especially being in a town like Boston where we've got Berkeley nearby, there's a ton of students who don't know what they don't know, meaning they have done some sessions at school, they think they're engineers and they feel confident that they can walk into a studio and use it. And even though we've set everything up to be as user-friendly as possible, I have discovered that that is not the case. There's still a lot of things that can go wrong. There's still a lot of buttons that can be pressed or forgotten to be pressed. And um, there's a really wide range of uh, experience levels out there from people who call themselves engineers. And you've got to bear that in mind uh, as a business owner, because it's really common. It's a really common thing for someone to assume the studio is broken when they can't figure out how to use something, even if everything's working fine. That happens all the time. There's also some liability, um, just in terms of like you've got a lot of really expensive equipment, and maybe someone doesn't know how to handle it. Um, you know, I've had more than a couple of ribbon microphones blown up on on people's sessions. We have tweeters blowing up on our monitors. People get careless, and those are all things that you've got to bear in mind uh, as a someone who's running a business that has a lot of really expensive, specialized, and often fragile equipment. All right. Uh, Isaiah Prather's wondering, how have you branched out to regional act from distances that may be too far to travel? Or do you stick to bands that are within travel distance? When contacting bands, do you go to shows before contacting, or do you give them a heads up that you will be coming? 
And but why that's what's weird about the wording in this question is travel distance because anything's travel distance if it's on Earth. So <laughs> I think maybe he means like reasonable travel, like you know that you would. That's not like a six-hour drive, like where you they don't have to come stay in your city. Right. I don't reach out to bands very often. It, it, you know, you, bands usually reach out to me, and so if a band from California wants to work at my studio and work with me, then they make the trip. It's simple. It sounds like I'm simplifying it, but I don't know. That's just how it happens. You know, if someone from another part of the world wants to work with me, uh, if they want me to mix, then they can send me files. You know, the internet has made the world a much smaller place. So like right now I'm mixing a record for an Australian group. I'm not ever going to meet them in person, but they can send files over the internet and I can work on this stuff remotely. Uh, so for, for that kind of situation, it's pretty easy, um, for bands that maybe live across the country, uh, They'll just come out and they'll just do the record with me. Was there ever a time where you would reach out to bands? There's still bands that I really admire. And, and yeah, I've, I still reach out to bands. Um, you know, when I was younger, I would certainly hustle bands more. You know, I would I would talk to them and try to, you know, convince them to come record with me. But it was it's it tends to be pr- a pretty organic thing. Like I'll be at a show. I'll see a band that is great and we'll start talking and I'll say, hey, that was a really cool show. And we start talking and all of a sudden, you know, it comes up either it comes up that I'm a recording engineer and that I have a studio or they happen to know the name of the studio or they happen to know my name and we get to talking about recording and it just kind of happens organically. Um, every now and then I'll just like, I guess hit a band up like, um, a recent one, um, for example, was the band daughters were coming into town last year on, on a reunion tour that they were doing and they were playing a couple shows in Boston and they had done, the Hell Songs album at Mad Oak, you know, years ago when that record was made. And I just dropped him a line out of nowhere and was like, hey, remember that time you recorded at Mad Oak? What if we did it again? It'll be kind of fun. Like, just come in for a day, give him a free day before your show, like basically before soundcheck, like, the, you know, they, they came in for like a couple of five hour sessions before before their, um, before their sound checks at this club. And we did a recording uh, and that was just totally out of the blue. You know, I didn't hit them up to tell them that I was going to hit them up. You know what I mean? I kind of just like dropped them a line and, and my my thinking there is if warning i'm gonna warn you yeah exactly um my, my thinking there is like if they don't want to do it it's totally cool there's this is like a you know in that case it was real easy because i wasn't asking them to come pay me money i was like hey you're in town you did a really great record at my studio years ago let's like let's get you in again and and work together and and you know nothing nothing particularly came of that record of the recording we did actually we they came in they recorded one of their new songs they have a it, it was it was effectively a demo session for the for the record that just came out that has a much much different version of that same song on it. Uh, so it was all very low pressure, you know. Uh, so reaching out to them, there was really low risk to anyone. I could just kind of do it and go, "Hey guys, what's up? Let's do this." Those are the types of reaching out that I'll do if I if I'm offering a band free studio time or if I want to um, just get together with them and hang or something. I'll do that kind of thing. But I guess I, I sort of feel like the the the, the guy asking the question is overthinking it maybe too much or, 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 or making it more complicated than it needs to be. He's also 17 and still oh, in okay. high school. All right. Well, so here's, here's the thing then. I, I think that at that age, it's, un, it's easy to, um, you know, the music scene's really small. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of bands out there that when you're 17 seem like rock stars on top of the world. And then if you get older and especially if you're involved in music professionally, and especially if you're talking about a music scene like metal or hardcore, you know, like underground rock, basically, everyone kind of knows each other. It's just not that weird to reach out to people in a lot of cases, because in in a lot of situations you have mutual friends. I don't want it to come across as like name droppy or anything, but you just end up meeting people, you know? 
I can see how it at age 17, it seems like this cool club, but that's not really how it works. It's mo- for the most part, it's like pretty normal people who happen to be in cool bands or happen to be good engineers or good producers. And they just sort of interact with each other. And, um, when you're doing it professionally and you're doing it all day, every day, you're, you know, increasing the likelihood that you're going to c- come across these people. Yeah. One last question here by John Maciel. This one's worded kind of weird. Uh, it might've been autocorrect or something. So I'm going to attempt to paraphrase this. I think I understand what he's asking. So you who are running a commercial facility, what do you recommend to those of us who are beginning to run commercial facilities? What are some things that, some expenses that we may not be thinking about right now that might be really smart to invest in uh, so that we can think about scaling our studio up into something that, you know, other producers and engineers can utilize, you know, but we might not have these investments on our mind right now because we're at the beginning of the journey. Like, Hmm. is there anything that maybe you think would be real wise for us to... You know, if we're looking towards the future and what we want is to have a successful commercial facility like such as yours where other people can come in, what would you recommend that we invest in that we may not even be aware of right now? <laughs> well, you know, I can't I can't guess at what someone might or yeah, might not right. be aware of. It's also tough to say, I, you know, I think part of the answer could be regional or it could be dependent on the types of bands. You know, I, I know a lot of your a lot of your students are into metal. Um, I, I would say like, if you want to have a commercial studio, don't set yourself up to only record metal. Um, you know, so maybe buy a couple guitar amps and don't just get the axe effects maybe, but that could, I could be totally wrong. You know, it, I, I guess the best thing to do would be to try to meet up with people who own studios in your area, particularly studios that are busy and have freelance engineers working in them and see what they have. And maybe try to talk to the actual freelancers themselves and say, Hey, what do you guys value? That's what we did. Like I said, we, you know, we, we, when we were laying the place out, I had all my ideas and some of them got superseded by conversations I had with the folks that I wanted to bring into the studio to work. Uh, They would tell me what they liked. And there's a, I guess two kind of a two pronged benefit to that. One is that you'll hopefully make a more well-rounded studio. The other is that by saying, Hey, Mr. Engineer X, what do you want in a studio? And they tell you and you go, cool, I'm going to, I'm going to implement that into my studio. Now, Mr. Engineer X feels like they've had some say in the building of your studio and they feel maybe more compelled to work there now because they've had a part in its design. You know, you're, you're sort of, um, you're, you're hearing their voice and their preference and saying, Hey, I value what you have to say. And they're going to say, cool, that's awesome. Now there's a place that's kind of being built to my specifications. Like, I want to work there. That's great. Great. And I just have one last question. Okay. Which is, uh, what's up with the cold brew at your place? It's so damn good. Isn't it good? So basically, for people who don't know, Mad Oak has cold brew coffee on tap. <laughs> and it is fucking great. And I'm not. I'm one of those people that, like, does cream and sugar. Like, I don't like my coffee black, but I will just drink this straight out of the tap the way it is it's just so damn good it's so good first of all thank you for putting that in but uh what's what's the story with that 
um, Craig, who's the guy that started the studio years ago, uh, a few years ago, took a coffee roasting class just for fun. He, he loves coffee. He thought it'd be kind of a fun thing to do. And um, the guy teaching the class is this renowned coffee roasting expert. Um, Craig discovered that he's really, 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 really good at roasting coffee. And the guy told him, hey, man, you're unusually good at this. You should like think about doing this a little bit more seriously. And Craig did. And he just got really good at it really fast and makes kick-ass coffee. It's as simple as that. <laughs> it's great, man. Like, seriously. <laughs> that was one of the best things. It really was. It's just so damn good. So I know, it's awesome. Every, everyone loves it. It's a huge, it's a hit. Yeah. And I don't know. It's, I've been to studios where they have like beer on tap before, but, and like, you would think that that kind of thing is like, superficial or a gimmick but it's not like it really it's little details like that go a long way to making clients happy definitely definitely maybe so maybe that's an answer to one of your early questions then is that client comfort is something that i think maybe gets overlooked everyone gets so focused on like i need another mic preamp or another compressor and maybe what you need is like a good coffee maker you know that's absolutely true one of the first things i did when i had my first studio like first studio, um, you know, my parents' basement, uh, was I bought a mini fridge for the control room and I always had it stocked with uh, Red Bull, Coke, water, Sprite, Dr. Pepper, just a lot of it. And, um, you know, this is, it's that's not a big deal. Like, it's not like, I don't think this is some like genius thing I came up with, but I did that. It cost me, you know, like $5 or $10 per session to do it. And it's not like people came to me because I had Dr. Pepper in the fridge, <laughs> but they appreciated it. Just little things like that. Totally. Um, they appreciated that. And I mean, you know, that was a mini fridge in my very first studio's control room. So, you know, there, you, there are a lot of things you can do beyond that to make people comfortable. And I've seen some studios go you know, put a lot of money into it. But even if you're just starting out and uh, all you have is a basement room or a garage or, you know, you bring your clients into your bedroom, like whatever, uh, little things like that go a long way. They really do. A comfortable couch and some good lighting goes a long way. Yeah, it does. It, it really, really does. Um, the, it's kind of like, so when you fly at the front of the plane, they do a lot of stuff that costs them zero dollars. Like for instance, you know, they, the hot towels that are um, moisturized that they give you um, about 20 minutes into the flight that you put on your face and stuff, um, that doesn't cost them any money really. I mean, maybe it does to clean the towels, but uh, it's not like they invested this huge amount into the hot towels, but it just makes you feel better. Um, and there's a bunch of little things that they do uh, that aren't like, I mean, if I wanted to just get a towel in my own place of living and uh, run it under hot water or put it in the microwave for a second and do it, I could. Like, it's not <laughs> like they're giving me something I couldn't just do myself. But the the fact that they're thinking about making me feel better in an uncomfortable situation makes me happy. Yeah. Like I, that kind of thing, it works. Like you don't have to give people 
expensive things in order to make them feel better. Like oftentimes it's just thinking about their comfort and doing a few simple things like a comfortable couch with some decent lighting, a mini fridge with cold drinks, that right there already, you're, uh, you're already ahead of the game compared to most places that are first starting out. Yeah, totally. It's those things make a, a huge deal. Yeah, it, it's true. So, all right, Mr. Benny Grotto, I think uh, three hours is a good run <laughs> right. time. Thank you so podcast. much. I bet you weren't expecting to have, do a three hour long episode. I wasn't, but uh, it's a good warm up for when you finally give me one of the nail the mix uh, things. You know, I got to get my endurance up. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that's more like seven to 10 hours. So this was a good start for sure. Good. All right, cool. But uh, thank you for coming on. Thank yeah. you for taking the time. Pleasure talking to you as always. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot. This episode of the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Golden Age Premier. High quality vintage style products at an affordable price point. To find out more, go to goldenagepremier.com. This episode is also brought to you by Fuse Audio Labs. Uncompromising emulations of classic and rare studio processors in revolutionary plug-in form. For more info, go to fuseaudiolabs.de to ask us questions. Make suggestions and interact. Visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.